0: me a go no go for launch
1: just when you think you're out they pull you back in i was gonna say something that was not true
2: i i don't know why we do these let's make film history
3: we are go for launch welcome back
1: everybody to the almost sideways podcast this is episode 187 we're recording on Sunday, August 21st, 2022 at 3 p.m. Pacific time. I am Terry Plucknett. Joining me are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz, as always. How is it going, guys?
2: Living the dream, as usual.
1: Awesome, awesome.
2: Been stressed out beyond belief.
1: Well, yeah, you had your first week you. back to school this week.
2: Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, Tony Kornheiser once said that uh, when you hit 43, your fingers stop working. And uh, I think I'm learning that when you turn 35, pretty much everything stops working. I don't know. You've already hit that age, Terry. So
1: I have. I'm a couple years past that. So
2: especially when you hit 63, as, as we'll talk about a little later, then then you're really dead <laughs> inside and out.
1: And yeah, there you go uh make sure that we are uh subscribing rating reviewing everywhere you find your podcasts and uh yeah let's just get into it because we've got a lot to talk about we've got a lot to unpack here uh zach what are you drinking today
2: i I mean this is how lame i am i can't drink i've got i got work to do tonight i've got to like learn how to teach (laughs) 3d animation i've got to learn these new cameras i got i mean you know listen i have a great job i'm not complaining about it but like i'm not kidding when i say this is my version of todd's christmas i have i have no spare time I, I do not know what has gone on in the world this week i there i think there was a some pre i think the chiefs had a preseason game yesterday i'm not following sports i'm not following politics i'm just in 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 a zone i did have time for three movies this week though which is impressive i wasn't sure if i was going to get to all of them but uh yeah it's amazing i'm here
1: all right so agua fria for zach
2: agua fria sadly Todd, what do you got? I apologize in advance. I'm drinking uh,
0: wine, the 2018 Monterey Chardonnay from Montoya Vineyard in McFarland, California. And uh, it's really dry, but um, I mean, it's tasty. I-, I-, I could go with this.
2: Wasn't that nice. the name of a movie, McFarland, California? McFarland, McFarland USA. USA. Ah, there we go. Okay, Close.
1: All right, so uh, did something a little different this week. Instead of going to uh, to Ridge Walker, we were on the other end of town, so we went to a different spot. We went to uh, it's called Noble Hop Beer House in Hillsborough. They gave me a little sticker here. See, Noble Hop Beer House, there. And uh, I like to go to Ridge Walker because they have their own beer. Uh, Noble Hop doesn't brew anything; they just serve everyone else's stuff. But uh, the what I have here it's out of Great Notion Brewing in Portland. It is their orange creamsicle. It is a milkshake IPA with orange puree and vanilla in it. So I haven't actually tasted it yet, but here it is. Looks pretty cool. So,
2: are there hints of strawberries and clove and nutty Edam cheese too? Whoa, no,
1: but very, very vanilla. And the or I mean, it's it's a vanilla, it's a vanilla creamsicle in a beer. That's really what it tastes like. Wow.
0: I feel like that'd be there's, better as a dark beer.
1: There's a lot of flavor there. Well, I had a, a like a tangerine sickle uh, cider was it last week or the week before. This is a very different taste. You can taste, you can taste the, the creaminess to it. Like it said, it's a milkshake IPA. You can taste that, that piece of it. And, wow. There's a lot going on there. Okay. This is gonna be fun. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about what we've been watching this week, and we are going to start today with Todd.
0: All right. Well, first, I want to say I did get to see Bodies, Bodies, Bodies yesterday. Um, nice. Yeah. Um, my favorite part is definitely Aaron Rodgers. He was he's awesome in that movie. Um, but I don't know. I I, I wasn't a, I wasn't a big fan of it. Like I, I like. I know the gen the whole Gen Z thing, you're supposed to like laugh at how stupid they are, but I was just annoyed most of the time. Like they're all so painful to be around. And uh and the the ending I didn't I didn't think really worked. I mean I saw that come that sort of thing coming all along, but the very last scene I thought was the exact same scene as the end of men, which I, I thought just brought it all together. It was really weird. But yeah, I mean I, I I was I'm in like two-star range, but uh it was it wasn't boring. I was just like I, I was just kind of annoyed. But the line that sounds the most like you that Pete Davidson
1: says in that movie is when he gets the zucchini bread and goes, Yum! Like that, that is totally something you would say in the way you would say it. Just throwing that out there,
0: I suppose. And I may or may not have injured myself the way he does, uh, not quite as extreme, but I have done that before. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, so but the movie I want to talk about is one that Aya is a indie. Uh, independent spirit award screener I got called, uh, Delia's gone. We're directed by Robert Boudreaux and it stars, um, St- Stephen James, who is the, the main character in if Beale street could talk, but he plays Lewis and he's his man. He has a intellectual disability kind of, and his sister, uh, Delia is protective of him, but she's also like an alcoholic and a drug addict. And one night she turns up dead and he is convinced that he must have done it, even though he doesn't remember. And they, so he kind of has a short prison prison sentence. And then when he gets out, this other guy comes up to him and he's like, there's more to her death than you know. And so he decides he's going to go and investigate the case on his own. Uh, while these two cops, played by Marissa Tomei and Paul Walter Hauser, are like trying to almost keep him out of trouble. Like keeping an eye on him, but also they have like their own little secrets that are lurking in the background. Stephen James, it doesn't. Uh, he's a little off, but it kind of works. He has a really weird posture, but he's pretty lovable. It, it kind of makes it so he, he's doing like a sling blade kind of thing. If he was like wrapped up in like Mystic River, um, but it has the movie has this like really small town feel of these like indie movies recently, like Lost Girls or even like Sharp Objects or something like that. Like a, there are a lot of these things that where it's like about something one thing very specific, and uh, and it it makes a mystery around it. Um, it kind of feels like a HBO miniseries packed into a 90 minute movie. It, it, it I, I like that the filmmaker had the balls to actually make like a 90 minute crime thrill that's really tight, but also complete. It all, it kind of almost feels like rushed because a, a lot of things are left un, unsolved about certain characters, and like things just kind of fl, uh, flash by. I don't really know exactly uh, how to rate this, but uh, I mean, I. It wraps it up in a way that's conventional, but it's staged in a way that's kind of hard to shake. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at two and a half stars. I'm not like it's admirable, but uh, it, it is just sort of pretty conventional in the same way.
2: Yeah, I've heard of that movie. It's playing here um, in my region. Um, this is a little off topic, but did you guys see IndieWire came out with... They, they did this thing called 90s Week, all I 90s nostalgia. And they came out with uh, all... They asked all these celebrities and actors and directors their favorite 90s movies. And I thought Paul ha- Paul Walker-Hauser's list was the best. He had Fargo number 1, Toy Story 2, The Matrix 3, Pulp Fiction 4, Hoop Dreams 5. There was some really bad... Entries in this list, like the director of the instant classic Diane Keaton vehicle uh, Mac and Rita, she named Stepmom as her favorite movie of the '90s, which is just awesome. Uh, but I really liked uh, Paul Walker Hauser's list. I, I, I have more respect for him now because of that.
1: All right, and and I it's Paul Walter. Yeah, Hauser. excuse me. Yeah, not Paul Walker. Hauser.
2: <laughs> not Paul Walker Hauser.
1: Yeah, that's that's not
2: it. They didn't ask Paul Walker. He's unfortunately deceased.
0: It, this is true.
2: Zach, what did you watch? Okay, I watched a documentary this week that I have right here. It is called The Lost Leonardo. came out last Ooh, year. Yeah, I've heard of this one. So, um, And it is apparently fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it tells it, it chronicles um, the uh, kind of continuing drama of this painting allegedly done by Leonardo da Vinci called The Salvador Mundi. Uh, one of his apparently last paintings that has been cataloged in old records, but has never been able to actually be located. Uh, and so the movie kind of traced how these these basically collectors found it in a really random, like New Orleans, like storage facility in 2005, and then sent it to New York to have it both verified but also restored. And in the process of it getting restored, um, it was significantly. Uh, Altered in many ways. Some, but had it not done that, it would have been really decrepit and it wouldn't look that great. Um, and it was all done with the purpose of trying to put the painting on the market, but also to be exhibited worldwide. And when it was exhibited, it was a big kind of press publicity blitz. Um, and the documentary kind of goes in, it has three separate parts. The first part is the the finding of the painting and its restoration, which I thought was really fascinating. The second part was its sale uh, at Christie's and uh, no, Adam Sandler wasn't there, nor was KG sadly, but it did go for a very high amount. It went for $450 million. And uh, the final part, which in some ways was the most interesting is chronicling who bought the painting, which was none other than our good friend of this country, MBS, Mohammed bin Salam, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and uh, kind of the complicated global politics, because when you're talking to a despotic, you know, tyrant like uh, MBS and you're trying to get him to display a, a work of classic art, you know, he's going to kind of like uh, make uh, conditions which are not always favorable or or uh, politically um, am- amiable. Um, I thought this was an interesting documentary. I know the art world is not interesting to everybody. It, it, it's probably it's, it's an hour and 40 minutes to drag a bit. I probably could have been like a 30-minute Vice feature. But the real reason I watched it is for one of the stars of this documentary who is on the backside, none other than Pulitzer Prize-winning critic Jerry Saltz, my uncle, Who is prominently (laughs) featured in this documentary because uh, there is a lot of skepticism about uh, whether this is an actual Leonardo da Vinci painting or not. And Uncle Jerry takes the side that it is most definitely not an authentic Leonardo da Vinci. He thinks, he even calls it a work of crap. Uh, and, uh, goes into why it doesn't look at all like the Mona Lisa and, you know, maybe it was done uh, by one of his students or something like that, but there's no way it's an actual Leonardo da Vinci and, and, um, you know, in typical salts fashion, he brings the hot takes, he is ready for the, the, the unpopular opinions, and he's obviously the stick man of the movie, um. In all reality, though, it's a three-star movie. I recommend it. Probably more recommend it if you're actually interested in the the workings of the art world. Um, But uh, Uncle Jerry is obviously uh, the MVP of the movie. I mean, him being in the movie, like that's worth a half-star to a star right there. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yes. Uncle Jerry is a celebrity. He has has a new book coming out later this year about uh, art. He was once on a reality TV show that was fashioned after American Idol of the art world, and he was apparently Simon Cowell. And in that one movie we watched about the art world, like three years ago, allegedly the Jake Gyllenhaal character was based on him. But that's only reports. The Velvet reports, Buzzsaw, right? Yeah, Velvet Buzz. There we go. Now we're talking. Yeah, shout out Uncle Jerry. I'm sure you're listening.
1: Awesome. Awesome.
2: All right. Well, on to me. My watch
1: for this week was also a documentary. Uh, it's probably one of my biggest blind spots. It's on my Oscar list for this year. Uh, go back 20 years to the winner of best documentary in 2002.
0: Bowling for Columbine.
2: Bowling for Columbine. Wow. You'd never seen it.
1: I'd never seen Whoa. Bowling for Columbine. And uh, yeah, I'm glad I did because this is a fascinating documentary looking Timely at, sure. um, yeah, looking at the uh, Guns in America, school shootings and things like that. What makes this documentary interesting is, I mean, I can imagine it being pretty edgy and and uh, and controversial for its time. But the fascinating part of it is it's been 20 years and you can watch it now and it has the exact same impact I'm sure it did 20 years ago. Because so many of the questions... Uh, that michael moore asks in this documentary about why our country is so violent why why we kill at such a great rate as and compared to other countries our questions we're still asking ourselves and i feel like he found some decent answers and has some pretty good proof for him in there and nobody really wants to listen so it, it's a fascinating look at our country and the trends that we have in our country and the politics that can motivate or demotivate whatever we want to be doing. Um, yeah, this is a four star documentary and it is, it is a powerful film and uh, yeah, if you've never seen Bowling from Combine, watch it. If you have seen it, watch it again, because like I said, it packs as much punch today as it did 20 years ago. And I can imagine 20 years ago, it may have been a little bit ahead of its time and, uh, and yeah, um, It's admirable that the Academy gave this best documentary, but it it really hits home, especially in the culture we have today. So Bowling for Columbine, four star movie. Check it out. It's incredible.
2: Yeah, I think it's one of the best documentaries ever made. It's the quintessential movies of the 2000s, even if you don't love Michael Moore in a way, it's not. His target isn't necessarily Republicans or George W. Bush or people or specifics. I mean, he's looking at, more broadly speaking, why violence is so endemic in our culture. It's the movie that he famously was talking about why Canada is less violent than us. He goes mm-hmm. to Canada and no one locks their doors there. I think it's only controversial because of the Oscars. And it, it was most one of the most iconic Oscar moments in history. And he's talked about that moment. He says someone punched him backstage after his acceptance speech. Later, that person went up to him and apologized for it many years later. But uh, it wasn't Will Smith, was it? It was not Will Smith, believe it or not. (laughs) Do we know this for sure, though? (laughs) I guess we don't. Hmm. Conspiracy theory. Anyway, I love the documentary. Um, I think we now need to take out the part with Marilyn Manson. Because that part, I thought, like, damn, Marilyn Manson's bringing, bringing some good points to it, but he's a horrible human being. But other than that, the rest of the movie is, uh, is pretty stellar. I think that interview shows just uh, a, a prevailing trend
1: that a lot of these, like, hard, heavy metal rockers that everyone thinks are just these idiot people can actually be very intellectual and very intelligent. And I think Marilyn Manson shows that in that scene. Yeah. Uh, and then there, you also have the the infamous interview with Charlton Heston in this as well. Oh yeah, yeah. And then uh, the,
2: the guys from South Park, they're yeah. totally articulate as well. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating.
1: You had the uh, the moment with um, the kids who were um, who were victims of Columbine, but were living with their injuries, and they go to Kmart mm-hmm. and uh, and buy up all the bullets and all this stuff, and and they were actually able to make a difference. But the funny thing is, they weren't able to make a difference until they called the press to uh, arrive at their at their meeting. So, it just shows what what motivates our uh, a lot of uh, especially corporate people in our country.
2: Yeah, you got you got the scenes with uh, you got the Chris Rock stuff in it. You've got the uh, oh yeah. So I guess there is a Will Smith connection. Let's uh, make
1: bullets five thousand dollars.
2: They got he has that great animated sequence. He's got the stuff yeah. with like Terry Nichols, the crazy guy, his brother at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie that it is like, again, regardless, it's unfortunate that Michael Moore is so politicized because regardless of your background, like this is just a fascinating, fantastic, totally not boring documentary. It's It's riveting.
1: Well, I feel like he was in a unique spot to be able to talk his way into specific situations because he's from Michigan. He's a member of the NRA, and so he was able to find his way into spots that normally someone who's making a movie like that wouldn't be able to do.
2: I think he was also less less known back then. Would be my. That's guess.
1: true too. That's true too. And, yeah. and maybe less political. Todd.
2: I think I
0: think it's his his best movie. Most of his movies are like so blind with like how he points questions and who he chooses to interview, but this one is different. And I've I've always thought this was like a really good documentary.
1: It's on Canopy. It's it's on I think it's on Pluto which is free regardless of if you have a library card. I mean it you can find this movie anywhere. Watch it.
2: It's worth and- it. Watch and the docu- and, and the Oscar win is a great moment too. I love all the people that are applaud. Diane Lane is like super happy he he won. Like she is just like beaming when she reads the name, and and Marty is pretty happy too. And then Adrian Brody's like uh, I don't know about that. I mean it's 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 a perfect. It's like the Ilya Kazan moment. You know, it's like who's who's really who at the Oscars. It was it was wonderful. The Oscars need more of that, more slapping. All right, more
1: slapping more slapping at the oscars when they they just
0: apologized to little feather like this week or whatever that's
1: (laughs) true that's true too all right well uh let's keep the documentary train rolling here because it's time for a featured review and for this week none of us wanted to go watch adris Alba be attacked by a lion so we didn't (laughs) <laughs> and so we were going to do a come to the stable movie as our as our movie, or we were going to look at uh, maybe something that's come out in the last couple of weeks. that's streaming that we didn't get a chance to watch yet. But then I thank you. Thank you. I figured this out. Uh, I had the idea and we uh, we went with it of going to uh, going to streaming and finding on BritBox which everyone can get a seven day free trial of, but make sure you sign up in the American side of the website and not like Todd who signed up on the British side and couldn't have access to anything. Um, you watched just
0: uh, a sign up in the app.
1: Yeah. Sign up in the You'll app see. or, or sign up for the, for the Brit box prime channel. Cause then it's just connected to your Amazon prime and then you don't have to worry about any of it. Anyways, We watched 63 Up. In
3: 1964,
2: Granada Television brought together a group of seven-year-olds. We have followed their lives every seven years. Their dreams, ambitions, and fears for the future.
1: Seven years older, seven years fatter, a bit less hair. You look at me at seven, and you look at me even now at 63.
0: It's flown by,
2: Michael. It's a lifelong achievement to be part of this program.
1: And this is the latest film in the... uh, acclaimed documentary series probably the the greatest documentary series of all time uh that follows this group of people and goes back and interviews them every seven years to see where they're at uh zach i mean this is your your this actually is your thing it's not it's not a marvel movie that this is you're the one that that has championed this forever and got us to watch it at some point so i'm gonna let you start off telling us about 63 up and uh and what you thought
2: so 63 Up uh, is the newest installment every seven years, uh, beginning in 1964, Michael Abted and his film crew uh, located these kids in in London, I think about 15 of them, maybe, maybe 12, and uh, every seven years they've come back and interviewed um, these people as they've grown up, and so Um, I was introduced to this series shortly after 42, 42 up came out in the late nineties. I think I watched that, that installment and all the preceding uh, segments or, or entries, um, when I was maybe 14 or 15. So I remember seeing 49 and 56 when they came out and we've waited a while for 63 up because it just, for whatever reason, hasn't really been available in the States. I saw 40, 49 up in the theater, um,
1: yeah, it's weird that this has been so hard to find.
2: Yeah. Um I I have the Up series in my top 100. I don't really know how to like rank it. It's it's weird. I can't think of another movie that's quite like it in the sense that you have to watch all the movies and then even when you watch the movies like 63 Up, I don't know what would you guys say like maybe 20% of this movie is new footage? Like so much of this yeah. movie is just archival footage from the past entries and that's not to, that's no slight on Michael Apted. Uh, but it's, it, the experience is more about the sum of the parts, the cumulative effect of all of those years of filming rather than the individual entry. I really like 49 though, because I thought th- that actually had a lot of interesting things that happened to those characters. And 63 up is of course the same way. Um, this movie absolutely blew me away. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, it's, uh, I, I've only done this a handful of times, especially in recent years, but I watched it Thursday night and then I watched it Friday night again absolutely amazing i think one of the great film film experiences as a viewer that you could possibly have it's not as though these people necessarily live extraordinary lives but they live very ordinary lives but that's what makes it so extraordinary some of them relish in being minor celebrities like tony the cab driver who apparently is more famous than buzz aldrin um some of them really shy away from the camera there's a few people who didn't show up for this one um I think one of my big takeaways was, uh, gosh, they're all old and fat and they've got gray hair. Some of them have grandkids at this point. A lot of them are talking about retirement. Um, Very bleak. You know, some of them have uh, some of them have parents that are still alive. I think Sue's parents are are both alive, but a lot of them talk about family members who have died. Um, And I think it's fair enough. It's been three years since it officially came out to say that uh, there is even a death. In, in the series that's uh, pro- chronicled um, in this entry. And of course, Michael Apted, the director, uh, died within the last couple of years. So w- the status of 70 up, I think, is very much unknown. So I think that's what made it made it, as a viewing experience, all the more poignant, because this, in theory, could really be the last one. We have a character um, who just get got diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor, I believe, within the you know two weeks of uh, two weeks prior to getting interviewed. So you can kind of see how uh, he's really rattled about that. Um, I, I don't know where to start. I, I, I guess one of my my big takeaway was that uh, it's depressing getting old. It's sad seeing these people reflect on. Relative successes and failures in their life. It's interesting looking at all the all the archival footage, seeing the times in which they peaked, the ebbs and flows. Like for example, Tony, you know, he had to sell off a lot of his property because the endeavor that he was tra- that he was trying his business endeavor in fifty six up was was a failure. It's fascinating being able to kind of chart those things and see where people are kind of ending up in their lives. I guess that's maybe the point of it. At the end of the day, they have to ask the question, you know, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the man. And I don't think there's a definitive answer because some of them absolutely are the same people that they were when they were seven years old and they say as much. And then others of them are absolutely completely different that and are completely unpredictable. So, again, it's just the joy of watching it. Um, it's so much more inter- interesting than a Marvel movie, so much more interesting than than commercial movies, and uh, you really do have to be there for all the movies, I think, to understand the cumulative effect. But uh, it, it this was an amazing, amazing viewing experience.
1: Uh, Todd, what'd you think of this one?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I'm a big fan of the series too. I I, I like this one. I this one's a lot more about reflection than in the than the previous movies. Like the last two or three had so much interview and it like drags it down a little bit, but like this one had a good balance, but it's not exactly the best. Like, I mean, I think 42 had the best balance of like archival and, uh, and new footage, but obviously seven plus seven is unquestionably the best in the series. I, I, w- I, I think 70 up is possible, but the problem is that I don't know who would be willing to take it on. Cause even uh, Michael's filmmaker son is dead too. So I, I honestly don't know who the, the subjects of the movie would open up to again, if, if it's not, michael or his family but it's a it's a it's definitely a somber movie like 63 up was uh was um was an experience to take in i mean i think it's not great but i think it's pretty good i'm, I'm sitting more around three stars but my, my favorite in the series has always been john like his pretentiousness and bluntness like i just think he's brilliant he always looks like a really intelligent vampire and he still does and <laughs> and the the one line that they always play is you know, one grows so slowly that one never notices. And when you say that at like age seven, you're just like, I mean, okay, that guy that guy is on another level, and he still is. I mean, he, he's 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 an amazing uh subject for a documentary. Yeah, he, he felt like he was like 45 when he was seven.
2: I yeah. read the Times and the Tribune. But, <laughs> but John is a perfect example of how the say, that the saying is not true because even at 21 714 and 21 he's this like pretentious little fop with his you know suit and tie talking about how he's going to become a barrister but i think in this one first of all he talks about how he voted against brexit which is in right that's an interesting point that's brought up in several interviews yeah yeah i thought and that was interesting too he's really his whole life now is 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 giving to this charitable foundation to help bulgaria and you know maybe it's maybe it's his presentation a little bit but like I, I mean, I, th- I thought his trajectory, especially over the last few episodes, has been really interesting and, and, and unexpected, uh, but it also speaks to someone with privilege. And of course, a lot of the questions are about the class system. If you're born into wealth, th- everybody understands that that gives you more opportunity. But I think for John, I think it's noble how he's used his opportunities in life for, for charitable causes and helping others.
1: Well, and he even left the series for a while and came yeah, back did. to promote his charity and his charitable, uh, his charitable work. Uh, he also is one that I thought was really interesting uh, that came up in this. He talked about how he felt he was misrepresented in past episodes and how his life isn't as, right. you know, roses and privilege and all that stuff as, as it's been made out to look. Because his his parents died when he was like before seven plus seven. And so, I mean, he's had a life that's very, very different than. uh, I think his father, his father died. His His mother
2: had to go and work, though, which was not, you know, you just assume that he was this privileged, aristocratic kid. But he was kind of working class by 14. And maybe that was, again, kind of posturing for the camera in those early episodes. And now, you know, there's just more authenticity, I guess, with age.
1: Yeah, I I haven't talked fully. I I love this too. It, it's I I think this is one of the better ones. It feels like more than any of the others. This one feels like it comes kind of full circle. I, I felt watching it that it felt like it could be the last one, and and I think the people in it kind of felt that too. Um, and maybe it's because of where they're at in life. They're sixty three years old. One of them was looking at you know but had had cancer and was looking at how he didn't know how much longer he was going to be around. And there, there was that, that inevitability that kind of came out in it. Uh, another thing I thought was really interesting is I felt like they were much more conversational in this than in the past ones. Like I felt like they, they like were talking to Michael Apted directly in this one a lot more like, like you would hear them say, I don't know, Michael, what, I mean, like I, they brought up his name more than any other, any other one. And I feel like it was, it was, this one almost felt more peer to peer than anything. And I mean, Michael Apted is only like, was only like 16 years older than these guys. I mean, he wasn't, there wasn't that big of an age gap, but once, um, and once you get older, you're kind of in the same stage in life. Um. But yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was fascinating. My favorite. Um, oh, There's so many to say, but I've always liked Nicholas. Uh, the, uh, the farm boy turned into a, uh, a nuclear physicist that goes to and studies and is a professor at the university of Wisconsin. And then you add on to the fact that he's the one that, that has cancer. And so you're seeing him and he's always had an interesting outlook on life and he's always been very self-deprecating and, and very um, very self-aware. He knows who he is and he's not afraid to to see himself for all his faults. But then to see him also contemplating his life as a whole because he knows that there might be some inevitability coming up, I thought that was a fascinating interview in this one.
2: Yeah, I think the reason I love 49 so much, if there's one subject in one year... It that's my favorite it's nick at 49 because it's after his divorce and he's remarried by that point and he just seems incredibly happy it seems like that is like the peak of his life because he's finding success as an academic after struggling for many years because of the the fusion reactors couldn't hold the you know the proper temperature and uh uh, you know, he struggles because his family is so far away and because of his divorce, but he just seemed really happy in this one. And it's heartbreaking watching him in this one. He he looks the way that he looks to the side of the camera is the way that he looked when he was 14 and couldn't even look at the camera. It It's almost as though he reverted to that socially introverted, awkward and totally unsure child version of himself in this one because of how. uncertain he is about his future and again it was i one of the more heartbreaking moments to watch
1: i also love how um simon and paul still get together all the time and it feels like they use this opportunity to get together like to do the interview um that that's always cool to see and the two of them work well together because neither of them like to talk much And so you put the two of them together and they they can bring it out of each other a little bit more. I like those. I I really like them.
2: Paul's always been one of my favorite ones because he's talked. They didn't so much talk about in this episode, but in, in past episodes, they talked about how he has dealt with depression and he seems to have a really strong marriage with with his wife. Um, And you're right. He is kind of uncomfortable on camera, but 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 charming for that. I don't know. But my favorite, though, is Tony. I mean, Tony is the (laughs) exemplar of this series and he begins every single uh, movie and he has so much energy. Although I do kind of doubt that he goes for jogs that often um, because of the (laughs) way he looks. But, uh, you know, he's the one that tells it like it is. Um, you know, his wife calls him out on cheating on him in that one episode. There is like, there's no BS with him. There, there's no pretension. There's no artificiality. He is the, the, the way that he is. And the big takeaway from this episode is we really need to come to the stable. The movie Tony was in nine. I, be, I believe it was called 90 minutes. Yes, I agree. I agree. He plays yeah. some sort of a, a soccer coach or a football coach, excuse me, who uses racial epithets. And uh, it was his big movie premiere or big, big debut. I, not debut because he's done, he's, he's done, done other acting work, yet. but. It was written and directed by Simon Baker. No, it's not the same Simon Baker. I think Are you I sure? looked it up. It was, a, Are you I, sure? I, it was a, it's a different Simon Baker. I looked it up.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a different Simon Baker who also did the other movie he was in called Night Bus. That's interesting. Yeah. I think um, of all the subjects Tony is uh, the best proof that the show me a child at seven. And I'll yes. show you the man. Yeah. Like, he he he's has insane. not changed. Yeah. He is the exact same person as he was when he was seven years old.
0: And he's but, the uh, one that you know would do that until
2: he dies. Like if, if they kept doing these, he would still be part of it. I also oh, yeah. feel I feel like Americans uh, he, there's he's not American, but Americans maybe know that personality type more because he's so blue collar and so laid back. And there, again, no pretension about him. The total opposite end of that spectrum when it comes to Show Me the Child at Seven, I'll Show You the Man is Neil. Absolutely. Uh, who's usually at the end of the movie. So maybe there's some sort of st- strategy in kind of showing that de-evolution. But I mean, Neil is, is completely different in every single episode. And I thought of all the ep- movies I've seen, this one had the best ending. That last scene of Neil on the bike and what he's talking about experiencing happiness and love at one point in your life, but n- knowing that feeling, but not experiencing it uh, was absolutely incredible. That was a great way to end this entry and maybe to end uh, the whole series.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's another one that that makes the middle ones in the forties interesting. Cause that's when his life starts to turn around and he starts to figure out who he is and, and where he's going.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, you look at the kid that Neil was at seven and he's just this idealistic, joyful,
2: goofy kid,
1: goofy kid. And then to to hear that, you know, by 21, he was he was working construction and squatting somewhere. And by 28, he was homeless. It was it, it's crazy. I would say the the female version of Tony of of one that that you could see who they're going to be at seven is Jackie. Um, she's one, and that she's a fascinating one because she talked about in this how and I'm we're basically talking the uh, through the entire movie, but you you still have to see it and you have to see the whole series. But she talks about how she's one that brings up even more so than uh, than John did, how she felt like she was misrepresented and how she didn't really get a fair shake in this whole thing, um, and has really been angry at Mike Laphead at times throughout the making of it. And I thought that conversation was fascinating.
0: Yeah, I, I actually wrote down that she was my favorite part of this one because of that. Like she, like it, the what the the series has done is like taking uh, these people going from like a precocious little kid to being wise with age, and not just because they got older, but because they have these artifacts they can reflect on and provide perspective that nobody else really is going to ever have. And she is one that actually was was uh, was looking back in a way that the other ones I, I feel like haven't really ever done. And so I think that she was the highlight of of this. Installment.
2: Yeah, I, although again, I, her talking about her her spouse, she wasn't married to him in the end, but they were still amicable. His death was another absolutely like heart wrenching moment. I mean, j- just the way that she talks about the circumstances of of his death and how that impacted her kids was just like, I I again, I don't know you're not supposed to take away false sentimentality watching this movie. I just took away that there has been a lot of tragedy and loss in these people's lives. And I, I don't want to be 63 years old, man. I, you know, I, I think Andrew probably has the best life out of everybody. Cause he's just some rich old boring lawyer who gets to go skiing and gardening. But the for the rest of them, like they've been through some serious shit. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's a glim- it's a very scary glimpse into Britain's future, I guess, as, as they say in the in the seven seven plus seven. But like that was rough. That that it, it was in some ways, it was like watching Anthony Hopkins and the father. It was just it was just kind of brutal at times.
1: Well, you mentioned Andrew, who who's had the easiest life. I mean, he's he was shown right alongside John at the very beginning that as as the upper class group, but at the same time, he's very self-aware as well. I mean, he you you see him now. It doesn't sound like, you know, I'm better than all of you. He realizes he's lived a privileged life. Right. And also is is fully aware of who he is. And yeah.
2: Well, and he has regrets that he worked so hard. You know, he didn't spend mm. time with enough time with his family because yeah. he was been working as a, as a lawyer for 40 years. And you can absolutely I should you know, we should clarify he does he hasn't had an easy life. Uh, he's just been working his whole life and and he's definitely had some regrets and losses for that. Maybe it's maybe not as, as the highs and lows maybe aren't quite uh, to the degree of some of the other people. Maybe his life just has more stability. His life has
1: ended up maybe where you expected it to end up more than anybody else.
2: Yeah, one of my favorite other people. Is, I know we're talking about everyone. I really love Sue. I think Sue's life has been really fascinating. Uh, by the way, I always thought Sue at thirty five was very attractive. Uh, and we can edit that out. Uh, I, I mean, like we're talking about peaks, but like I thought she was better looking at thirty five and forty two than you know in her twenties. Anyway, um, I thought uh, you know her her life is really fascinating too. Uh, again, someone without any sort of like. You got to think that for some of them, it's got to be hard to open up to the camera, but I've never sensed with Sue that there was any sort of distance there. Like she just is totally authentic. And I, you know, she's probably one one of the ones that makes you a little bit more optimistic coming away from the six, from the 63 because she's in a happy relationship. She's actually reached a career sort of peak. Both her parents are alive. She talks about how she hasn't had a lot of tragedy in her life. Um if there's, one ta- if there's one person whose life maybe I'd want to have realistically without being a, an excessively rich lawyer, maybe it would be Sue.
1: Yeah, she is an interesting one. Um, I read somewhere, uh, so you're talking about Sue. Susie is one that we did not see. Um, and I read somewhere that it was just like the wrong timing in her life. And that if uh, if Michael Apted had come along like two weeks later and asked her then, she would have said yes.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
1: So uh, I thought she's that always w-
2: hated doing it. She's talked about how it's really uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. It, it, it was something that it said that Michael Apted came by like two or three times. And she said, this is just not the right time. Call again in a month. And she said, if he would have called again in a month, I would have said yes, but he never did. He left me alone. And, uh, and I, I wonder if she regrets that now, knowing that that was, that was Apted's last, last effort. Uh, I one thing, I, knowing that this might have been the last one, and like Michael Apted, when it was released at, um, at film festivals, even said this could be the last one, knowing he was starting to fail in health. And apparently some of the people, some of the subjects I read, they, they were interviewed later on, and they said they couldn't tell that he was starting to fail in health. Um, he wasn't as sharp. He was forgetting things, things like that. But Charles hasn't been around since like, what, 21 up? Um, the fact that they just ignore his existence now, I kind of, is kind of a bummer. I mean, we don't know a ton about him, but I would love to just see, he's a part of this too. He decided again, not to be a part of it. I will say though, he probably has the most credits uh, of anyone on IMDb because he's a television producer in Britain. So.
2: Yeah. He's also threatened to sue Michael Apted. I think that's why he's not mentioned at all.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: But. Yeah, and 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 real fast, uh, I really also like si- the way Simon has evolved. So, you know, Simon mm-hmm. in, in, in recent installments talked about you know being a surrogate parent and uh, foster parenting, and I think that, again that's a very kind of noble thing to do with his life. Um, I don't know; it's just it's it's a fascinating portrait. I don't know what you do with all of it, but it was just so much. It's so much more interesting than it, it overshadowed anything that I've watched in the last few months, it feels like. It just feels like, I'm, 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 with all due you know, apologies and respects to Donnie Brosco, it just felt so much more significant because it's real. And I don't know, you can't make up the stuff that happens in this movie, but uh, it, it's an amazing achievement. And needless to say, I gave it four stars. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know how you give it a star rating. But uh, it's it's one of the great monumental achievements in, in movie history.
1: Yeah, I'm in a similar spot. I gave it four stars. But again, like you said, how, how do you really rate something like this? And it but it sticks with you and and you can't shake it. And I mean, I watched it Thursday, Thursday night. And I'm talking about it now as if I just watched it because it, it you can't help but just continue to think about it and have it stick with you in that way.
0: So is this like top ten of 2019 for you guys, or are you considering this even a movie? It is. Yeah, I'm
1: considering it a movie. It's right. It's back half of my top ten.
2: Yeah, I think I have it somewhere around five or six in in a loaded year.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, it is thrice approved. Like I said, it is available on BritBox, and if you don't want to subscribe to BritBox, you get a seven day free trial, and you can watch this, and then give it up or you can watch this and then you can watch the, uh, the Agatha Christie miniseries starring Will Poulter that Hugh Laurie wrote and directed. Um, and then, uh, and then cut it off. I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I saw ads for that every time I opened IMDb for like two months before it came out. And why didn't they ask Evans? And, uh, but it's only on Brit box. So I think I might still watch that before Thursday when I have to give it up, but all right. That is sixty three up. Again, check out the whole series; it is definitely worth it. All right, now to go for something completely different, we are <laughs> we are going to deep dive a movie from twenty five years ago. That is, I think, a forgotten mob classic because I mean, we you talk about all the great like mafia movies, Godfather, Goodfellas, all that stuff. Donnie Brasco never gets mentioned in that, and it should because it is it is a uh, it's just as, I wouldn't say just as good as those, but it is, it belongs in the conversation for sure.
3: He gave him his trust. You got to get rid of that mustache and
1: get
0: yourself a pair of pants. Trust, Just like me.
3: He loved him like a son.
0: Nobody can touch you because I represent you. Keep your nose clean, follow the rules, be a good owner. And
3: maybe one day when they open the books, you could come out. Wise guy. I'd die with you, darling.
1: So is what we're talking about for the rest of the podcast and zach you are hosting trivia tell us uh how, what we're doing who's going first all that stuff
2: all right well, i think we're going to start with terry i i this is on todd's top 100 not terry's top 100 so i assume yeah. he knows the movie a little better <laughs> Probably. so todd can sign off okay so uh we have 11 oh, wait, questions
1: hold on. Oh, let me get rid of him okay here we, we go
2: 11 questions for donnie Brosco uh i apologize and i think recently my questions have been super hard so i think i leaned more toward making them a little more accessible this time i guess we'll see okay okay first question what is the month and year that this movie takes place
1: it 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 takes place over a decent amount of time i think but i'm gonna go
2: it's a oh it's in the, the opening of the movie has a title
1: oh like october 1965 uh, November
2: 1978. Yeah. Okay. I can't give you credit for that. It's no, it's no, way yeah, past 65. Yeah. Okay. Uh as the movie opens, Lefty and Nikki are debating which two automobiles.
1: Oh, uh um a Lincoln and a Cadillac.
2: Correct. For two points. Uh okay. For four points. You owe me a Cadillac. Name lefty's other four nicknames. Ah. <sighs> Lefty two guns.
1: Correct. Um. Then it's like lefty guns. Correct. And then it's something.
2: Oh, you're you're missing the best ones.
1: Yeah.
2: It's just isn't just like two guns. Well, you just. No, no, not two. The other two are half cock and horse cock. Ah, But you did get two points. I got two of them. How much is Lefty's vig? How much is his vig? Yes. I have no idea. $3,000. What animal is on TV Lefty is watching Christmas morning? It's a monkey. Um, I wrote down cheetah. Oh, it's but, a cheetah. Yeah. Okay.
1: I was. I, there might I, have yeah. been a
2: monkey on there, but it was mostly a cheetah. What is the name of the boat? Uh, left hand. Left hand is correct. Uh like my name. Say, left. Left hand. Lefty says meeting the mob boss is like meeting who?
1: It's like um me. Oh, it's uh. I want to say the Pope, but that's not it. I'll say it
2: anyways. The Pope. Good guess. It's Mickey Mantle. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. What is the name on the matches that Sonny hands lefty and later the name of the club in Miami? Uh, um, oh, it's, you, um, you guys should get this. Yeah, I know. Royal crown. I uh, know it's King's court. King's court. Damn. Because you're Seattle fans. Come on. Yes. Yeah, shut up. Um, this was my favorite question. When are Joe's intimacy days? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you remember that scene. <laughs> Um, It's uh, Monday and Thursday Monday, Wednesday, Friday I'll give you a half oh. point for that uh, Eat it. <laughs> How much money does Joe get at the end of the movie from the FBI? $500 $500 is correct And then last question In Roger Ebert's TV review he compared the relationship of Lefty and Donnie to the lead male characters in what 1996 film that I believe is thrice approved Although I can double check I'm quite sure it is Ooh, yeah double check before I answer Uh, yes it is thrice approved although on our website it's it's listed as 1997 if that makes any difference so uh, it was released around this time and he compared the relationship of the two male leads Mm -hmm. to the relationship of... of the two male leads in this other movie I will I will entertain interesting answers even if you're not right.
1: Um
2: It's a good movie. We have not deep deep dove it. I think it's come up a couple of times in conversation. It's by a pretty well-known director who's still active and we reviewed one of his movies within the last year. Wow. Okay. Uh i uh, I can't even think of anything all right if you give up the the answer is hard eight slash sydney oh I can, I can kind of see yeah I don't remember much about that movie all right so you got uh six and a half points that that's that's uh not terrible not bad all right hold on i'm gonna there we go Now we're back all right uh Todd I have 11 questions. Um, I think they're worth up to 17 or 18 points. And uh, Terry got six and a half. So he's on the scoreboard. Okay. Okay. Uh, What is, uh, first question, what is the month and year that this movie takes place, according to the opening? The month and year,
0: uh, well, it's like 1978. Correct.
2: Uh, So what? Says the month. He's going to win.
0: He's
1: going
2: to win. November. November 78 is correct. Nicely done. Okay. As the movie opens, Lefty and Nikki are debating which two automobile manufacturers. Oh, okay. uh, Cadillac and Mercedes. Cadillac and Lincoln. But I will give you one point for that. Mercedes
0: is brought up,
1: but it's Cadillac and Lincoln.
2: Okay. Uh, for up to four points, name Lefty's other four nicknames uh, Horsecock,
0: Halfcock. <laughs> Yep. Those were the two I didn't get. Two guns and Lefty, two guns. That is correct. Four points uh, for Todd. Wow. It okay. reminded me of the uh, like that that one guy on Adam Daily Live that always came up like a uh, hard hard cold cock or whatever that guy's name was that we can never get his name right. Hard knock, hard knock, cold cock. I don't know.
2: Remember that?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what you're <laughs> talking about.
0: Yeah.
2: How much is Lefty's vig? His vig on. I, I, don't, I think about like 20% or something. Okay, well, the answer is $3,000. Okay. Not a percent. Maybe I'd have to look back at that scene, but uh, that's the answer that's given. $3, um, maybe it's the payment that he owes uh, as his big. Um, what is the animal on the TV Lefty is watching on Christmas morning? And it was uh, like a, it was something
0: attacking something. So can I say either one? It was like a gazelle, right? um like it was something attacking a gazelle like a
2: tiger or or something i'll give you a half point it was a cheetah attacking a gazelle but it was most the program was mostly about the cheetah okay um what is the name of the boat uh the left hand the left hand is correct uh according to lefty uh meeting the mob boss is like meeting who uh i remember the line Terry had a good answer. It wasn't the right answer, but I I liked his
0: answer. It's it's like meeting, I don't know, I I don't think it's right. It's like meeting a wizard or something like that.
2: No, the correct answer is Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle. Terry said the Pope, which was a good answer. Um, Okay, what is the name on the matches that Sonny hands Lefty and later the name of the club in Miami?
0: Oh, the club
2: name. Uh...
0: I can't
1: believe I got this wrong, too.
2: I don't know if it's ever mentioned in dialogue. I think it's just something that's shown.
1: I think it's said once. La- like one last one round,
2: round or something? No, the right answer is King's Court. Oh, Turns I was
1: much closer than he was. I, I think at least both knew it had some sort of regal theme. I
2: don't As Seattle man. I should have gotten that. All right. Uh, I said, my... What did I say?
1: Royal Crown?
2: Yeah, you were a little close. Okay, I'll give you a half point for that, Terry. There we go. There <laughs> okay. we go. Uh, Here's my favorite question. When are Joe's intimacy days?
1: <laughs> that is your best question by the way.
2: When are his intimacy days? I don't even remember the line. I It's I'm when they say... when they're in counseling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's such it's such a great yeah. line because like he says he he works for the FBI, he's never around, like when would he ever even have time for the intimacy days? That that it, it I think the point of that line was to show what a clueless buffoon that that counselor was. But it was it was a, it a it wonderful. Uh, no, the the answer is Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I was closer. Jerry at least said d- you... days of the week, and you did say Monday. Okay, I'm giving you another half point for that, um, <laughs> just to make things Jeez. more interesting. Uh, okay, uh, how much money does Joe get at the end of the movie from the FBI?
0: What like. Not not the amount that he walks away with, but like how much they actually give
2: him as his settlement or something um like for like ending reward, his man. contract is that how what you're much does he get from the FBI at the end of the movie like in his, the his, 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 his reward. reward yeah, he gets a reward for his
0: oh it's some it was small it was like what like ten thousand dollars or something
2: no, it was five hundred dollars. I knew it was small. I, I, I forgot it was that small. Okay. And then, last question: In Roger Ebert's TV review, he compared the relationship of Lefty and Donny to the lead male characters in what 1996 film? Slash ninety seven. Slash ninety seven, because it says ninety seven on our website. It's a movie that's thrice approved, and was by a director who's still active and a director who made a movie within the last year that we that, reviewed. We, that we reviewed. <laughs> Those are all the hints I got. <laughs>
3: ninety-six,
0: also ninety-seven. Um, a ninety-seven
1: release, but was first seen in ninety-six.
0: Did you get this right? No. No. <laughs> I've
2: had, and it's a and movie. So with this two this titles. movie's thrice approved. Yes, it's we've we've mentioned it a couple times. We don't talk about it often. The director is probably more well-known than the movie.
1: It was his first movie. It has it two titles. It was his first
2: movie. Oh, Sydney? That is correct. I'm sorry. We were looking for Hard Eight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true, wow. too. So it actually got kind of close toward the end, but okay. I have Todd winning eight and a half to seven and a half. Um, but uh, Monday is definitely an intimacy day. Can't Can't forget about that. <laughs> okay. All right. So what Your was the final score? Questions. Eight and a half to seven and a half. Todd won. Todd won.
1: Okay. Even what you, what I got an extra like point and a half. You got for a, how badly You got an extra full,
2: extra full point. Yes. Full point. I don't know if that was totally fair or not, but it did make I it. I just more knew lefties' yeah. names. Like I, lefties I don't feel like really I should have gotten that many points for that.
1: <laughs> I I got two of the four.
2: I got I got what what lefty guns and lefty two guns. But you should lose a point for not getting the more funny ones. It's true. You, you didn't say horse cock. You said, you know, two hands is not interesting. Two guns yeah. is not interesting. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, Todd, you recommended this. uh Tell us about Donnie Brasco and your experience with it and what makes it so great.
0: Well, the reason why I wanted to do it, other than the fact that it's an amazing movie, I think I have like eight mob movies in my top 100. This is one of them. But, um, uh, It was because Anne Heche has uh, passed away and I had noticed on Google TV that the number two trending movie was Donnie Brasco, and which would only mean that people sought this movie up because it's probably the most famous movie she was ever in. Uh, And I've always loved this movie. Like, I think Terry and I watched this for the first time together and we both were just like, did we just like discover an uncovered gem or something? Because like, we had never heard of this movie. No one ever talks about this movie. And it is Fantastic johnny depp which i think it is his his pinnacle this is the best acting he's ever done is in this movie the furthest step out that he's ever done and you have al pacino absolutely in his element you could say that this movie is sort of goodfellas but i don't think it is like on on the surface okay but like goodfellas is about like getting integrated into the mob by some by like people who like live that shit you know like like uh Uh, henry hill is getting integrated by you know tommy like that that is his life but like for this it's like lefty is different because lefty is somebody who respects it like he's he doesn't have a death wish he has a he has a code like he he takes it very seriously he lives the life because that's the life that he thinks that he needs to be living if anything i think the irishman takes from donnie brasco more than donnie brasco takes from any other movie it's more like a newman redford collaboration than a typical mob movie i or like in in some ways i guess fredo when he's in my uh when in, in vegas is like richie and in, in in miami like kind of the f-ing everything up like but being likably incompetent that'd be the closest thing i can i can think of that but i love donnie brasco joseph is stone he's a, it's a fbi agent goes undercover with the mob uh that's basically the, the plot of the movie and it um uh, I think it works. I think every beat of this movie works and it is directed by Mike Newell who had never really did something like this, uh, before or after. I think he did some like Harry Potter movies or something. And he did like four ratings and a funeral. This is not, uh, the, the kind of movie you would expect them to make, which is why it probably is a lot different than most, any other mob movie, um, uh, in, you know, at least modern mob movie. And, uh, It's fantastic, yeah. I don't know where it ranks in my top 100. I forget where it was, but it absolutely deserves whatever spot it's in.
1: So yeah, since Donnie Brasco, he directed Pushing Tin. He directed some episodes of The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones. Uh, Mona Lisa Smile, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Love in the Time of Cholera, Prince of Persia with Jake Gyllenhaal, Uh, Great Expectations, and um, the guernsey literary and potato peel pie society what
2: that's on this table
1: that is that is a thing that he directed um yeah
0: guernsey this movie won Guern- oscar nomination best adapted screenplay which i think is interesting because it is a very tight screenplay but that is not the kind of nomination that you get as your only nomination so i'm yeah, talk about that later strange. i guess
1: yeah, I was going to mention that that it wasn't completely ignored because it did get the 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 Oscar nomination there. Uh, Todd, it ranks number sixty nine in your top one hundred.
2: There we go. So, nice.
1: Um, let's see here. Right, uh, it's in between Skyfall and Five Graves to Cairo.
0: Sounds wow. like my top one hundred. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh. Yeah, um, like Todd said, I I watched it right right at the same time he did. Uh, I've always I've always loved it. I watched it this time as it was getting started. I'm like, is this gonna hold up? Because it's been a long time since I've watched this. But it as it as it moves along and as the relationship between Donnie and Lefty really develops, um, it. It's such an undeniably great great film and great performances. and it's interesting to see see faces in this that you look at now and you're like, oh hey, like like Zelschko Ivanek as his FBI handler. <laughs> I was just like, dude, that guy, that guy's in this and uh, he he's great in it and uh just random little part Gretchen mole is has a tiny little part she's gone on to do some some stuff I mean, it Tim it's Blake interesting Nelson. what oh Tim, Tim like Nelson, Nelson and and of course Giamatti which I'm sure will be mentioned later uh but yeah it, it's it's always great to see stuff like that um but yeah it, it it took a it took a little while to get into it and get going but once it I did I was like okay that's that's why this is a great movie now now Zach you are well your rating is not on the website so what what did you think of i think you've seen it before or you've at least seen part of it
2: what'd you think well it's it's kind of funny it was similar in some respects to red dragon i i i saw it at one point i know i saw red dragon this movie i think i tried to watch and could not get through it gave up on it in part because i f- i remember thinking and, and i this came back to me watching again that i thought it was so inconceivable that uh, Lefty would be this um, high uh, gangster, uh, you know, in in the world of uh, the mob, this enforcer, this brutal guy who would just let this jeweler into his life. I remember thinking that seems unrealistic and there's a lot of mob movie cliches. So I think I dozed off during it. I do remember the end of the movie, though. So maybe I woke up at some point. Um, I swear I watched it at Concordia with you, Terry. I thought we watched it. I thought we screened it for the fan club. I, uh, we might have maybe not. We might have. I, I don't know, but uh, I think I have I, no, I didn't make this rating official on our website, but I have it in my database as a two and a half star movie. Not a very fair rating because I didn't remember the movie and arguably hadn't seen most of it. So, watching it uh, this time was an interesting experience. Um, I'm glad I watched it. Uh, it is better the the first 30 minutes, I think, are kind of the weakest part of the movie. I think, I think, once you start, once you get past, um, maybe some unbelievable. I don't know, gullibility of, uh, of lefty, um, once you start actually getting into the dynamics of their relationship, uh, the movie becomes a lot more compelling and interesting. Now, I will say this movie suffers as a result of other movies and TV shows that are better about the mafia. And I will fully confess that had I seen this movie in, I don't know, when, when did you guys see it? Do you remember? Was it before? Yeah, yeah, I'm guessing before The Departed, right? If I had seen this movie before The Departed and before I watched The Sopranos and maybe even before Goodfellas and before, you know, some other stuff, I probably would also feel the way that Todd feels about this movie. I would have loved it. Um, It's just unfortunate that in my life it came along at a time when when I watch this movie, it just reminds me of other movies and TV shows that did this better, which is not to say this is a bad movie. I give this movie three stars. It's a very interesting movie with a multi-layered performance by Al Pacino, really kind of playing against type, which I admire. Uh, There's no freak out scene in this movie. I guess kudos to Mike Newell for, for exercising that kind of restraint. But the problem with this movie, besides the fact that it's so just inherently derivative and not as good as this other stuff is, um, I just I, I think Mike Newell might have been the wrong director for it. This movie's not really flashy, and maybe the story isn't meant to be flashy. But like, you know, even the scenes in the seventies, kale in comparison to like Boogie Nights, this movie doesn't have any flash. It doesn't. It, it it's not exciting. There's no there's no like you know moving camera and great sa- kicking soundtrack like Scorsese. Actually, I think the music in this movie sucks. But um, there is a really good core relationship at the heart of the movie, which is interesting, and there's good performances too. It's just a product of the 90s, which is a which is the problem. And I think if this movie was made, if this movie had never been made, it could have, I think, made a really interesting um, eight part series on Netflix today because I would have the real life Donnie Brasco infiltrated the mob for six years. And you got to think that there are a lot more layers um, and stories to that piece than this the snippet that this movie provides. Um, that being said, though, I I, I am glad uh, that that Todd chose it. it's an interesting movie to talk about, and and it is kind of forgotten. I'm not really sure why, um, but uh, people don't talk about it today.
0: So if like Tom Jane would have been the strip club <laughs> operator, you would have loved this movie, like making more boogie nights, right? <laughs>
2: Well yeah, like you look at those scenes when they're like, you know, at the at the parties, you know? Like the, there's a few scenes in this movie they don't I don't know if they actually like disco dance, but I I couldn't help but think about, you know, um um Louis Guzman's club in Boogie Nights at the beginning of that movie and just how much more amazing and dynamic that looks compared to this kind of ratty back room. And I guess that, you know, it's the movie, it's the environment that these characters live in, but I just I don't know, I wanted more I wanted more Paul Thomas Anderson, I wanted more uh Scorsese I think Mike Newell might have been the wrong choice well that's (laughs) also the
1: difference between having a movie set in LA and a movie set in New York
2: I I don't I don't know if I agree with that necessarily like I think even Russell in American Hustle like that movie had flash to it and that was also a New York movie um and again I'm not saying that I think I I am putting in what I wish this movie had been rather than what the reality was which I'm sure for the actual sting operation was in these kind of underground seedy locations that the movie kind of shows. I I guess just from a filmmaking standpoint, I would have preferred someone with a little bit more, um, flash.
0: I mean, this is, it's like, it's more character based and it's like about the experience of watching the movie, which is why it's, I always, I mean, I think it's different. I don't think it's derivative. Like I said, like, I mean, yeah, Pacino is not playing, uh, um, to what you would normally expect him as, as like, um, especially in the mid '90s. But like, his character is a character I don't think I've seen in any other mob movie where he he's living the life because that is the code that, that he has a code and he lives by it and he knows what's expected and he does that. He doesn't want to be part of it necessarily, but he is because he thinks he has to be. And I that, it's a, such a unique character. And Johnny Depp, uh, the Joseph Pistone, going into this. It probably was several years for him to actually get integrated into like the the who the the barber and uh, the one bartender to, for people to actually know him and trust him in order to actually even speak his name to these mobsters. Uh, I I mean he probably was undercover for several
2: years before he even met those guys. Yeah, and and Todd, you just hit on maybe my favorite part of the movie, which is how. And you're right, this this aspect not a lot of mob movies go into, which is how you have to present yourself in the mob. You know, I mean, Henry Hill talks about, the, Ray Liotta says it on the narration, but, like, this movie actually has scenes where Pacino's saying, you know, no, you don't use a wallet, you use a money clip. And, uh, you know, like, little little tidbits about how to present yourself because, uh, you know, the other really unique part about this movie is that Lefty is a poster. He's not a fearsome, intimidating presence, at least once you get to know him, he's a schlep. Like, he's kind of a loser. The other gangsters make fun of him. That's why they buy him a lion, you know? They're they're pulling practical jokes on him. And that's what makes him, in, in a way, a seductive sort of personality type. When you see Al Pacino, you think Ricky Roma. But the truth is, Lefty is more Shelley the Machine. Like, he's just kind of sad and mopey and depressing. And, like, you feel you feel sympathy for him, which is what seduces the Donnie Brosco character. That element of the movie and the how-to-live-your-life posturing as a mobster were the best parts of the movie for me watching it. That's what I find interesting about it, too, is, I mean, you
1: took Michael Corleone and made him a schlep in the mafia. And, and then and this is where I think it separates itself from, from something like the departed. And partially because it's a true story is that you have Donnie Brasco coming along and just, and eclipsing him and passing him. And then, and so you have almost this, almost this mentor relationship that turns into a rivalry because of what Donnie's able to accomplish. And then this whole side plot of, Oh crap. He's like in the upper ring of the entire New York City mafia now. We got to get him out of there. He is way too deep. Uh, and and then you also have the how much do, does going undercover change you? Uh, I think it does that really well in here, and maybe maybe better than than the counseling sessions between Leo and Vera Farmiga. I
2: no, I don't know. No, no, no. I don't know. Well, it's interesting.
1: It's it's an interesting. I, I didn't think about Departed when I was watching it. Now that you mention it, it's interesting to compare the two.
2: Oh, I thought about the, the Departed constantly watching this movie, and then and this this maybe gets to my point, which is the flip side of it. Because see, to me, this movie. Okay, so how does this movie open? This movie opens with the mob in a transition period because you have the mob boss. I'm not really even sure who the mob... I think it was Rusty, was it? And he's apparently in the hospital, was it? Or in jail? And there's a power struggle at the top between Sonny Black and Sonny Red. Who's going to become the mob boss? And of course, Lefty maybe has aspirations of becoming the mob boss at some point in his life, which is maybe why he takes in Donnie under his wing. To me, that is the exact same storyline as season one of The Sopranos. You have Jackie Aprile in the hospital. There's a power struggle between Tony Soprano and Junior Soprano. And as, as I was watching this movie, I really thought Lefty is kind of like Junior Soprano in the first couple seasons of The Sopranos. He does actually end up taking over the mob temporarily, but only because he's like, you know, Tony's exercising puppet strings over his goofy, schleppy uncle who no one takes seriously. So the Sopranos got out two years after this movie. It is not a fair comparison. I'm sure David Chase watched Donnie Brasco and thought this is, this would make a great storyline uh, to a, a TV arc for a whole season. Um, so it's a compliment. In a, in a way, it's a roundabout compliment to the movie. The problem is I saw The Sopranos before this movie, and I could not help but think that The Sopranos went more did in Did you, depth. though? Officially, did, did you? Did I what? <laughs> did you watch The Sopranos before college? Oh, well no, no. I mean I I but I didn't watch this movie seriously is what I'm saying. I didn't I didn't actually watch this movie in 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 its in its entirety and think about it. So that's that's the problem. But uh that being said, I can understand why having not made the Sopranos or watched the Sopranos that would be a compelling storyline. It's just the same storyline in the Sopranos. And the Sopranos did it better. But, you know, whatever. So according to IMDb's the, the trivia page the correct
0: afterwards forget about it. By
2: the way. Forget
1: about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: according to IMDb's that's trivia page
1: uh joe Pistone says that this movie is 85% accurate
2: that's interesting
1: and uh that's and really paul adonasio the screenwriter uh captured the mob dialect uh very accurately because he had joe Pistone's wiretaps that he listened to and used to wow. write the dialogue
0: so he the paul adonasio hasn't done a whole lot right like he's uh he, he wrote a quiz course. show, but I think, yeah, it looks like he's got six credits, uh, six movie credits, two Oscar nominations. That's not that's not normal. <laughs> wow. Some of all fears, good. The good German sphere and disclosure are his other four movies. And apparently he's making a movie about Hot Wheels cars.
1: Well, <laughs> In he's, 2025. Been busy, he's been busy working on uh, the TV show Bull, apparently.
2: He also oh, made, yeah, he, he was creator. a creator of that he did he did a movie called rush but not the uh ron howard version of rush rush Russ slash h okay homicide life on the streets so i thought that was a he. that was his movie he did with uh so with george clooney yeah see and and that's to me you know he's a film critic right so he has this vast knowledge of film history and that's maybe the 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 side of the movie I don't like. This movie, I think, indulges in a lot of mob cliches. And again, you know, I'm just a jaded, cynical 35-year-old at this point. Had I seen this movie when I was 17, I would have been like, that's fresh and original. That's awesome. But listen, I can do now without the scene with the black and white pictures of the mob bosses and the string connecting them in the FBI headquarters, okay? I can live without that scene at this point in my life. I can live without uh the scene They showed that for like 10 seconds i mean i think i can live without the scene with the with the mobsters taking out the coat hangers in the back rooms um i can i can live without the scene of the the scene where he's wearing a wire and oh gosh he's got to take off his clothes i've seen that in a million movies okay but i but i
0: guarantee that that actually happened like i that scene is so specific i guarantee that him him needing to take off his shoes for a Japanese restaurant, I guarantee that was I would bet you book. money
2: that that was a, that did not happen. There's no, I don't think there's it's no way they way made, that, made that up for the movie Oh, I think that's a total, that's a, such a movie cliche. You have to do that for a character who's wearing a wire at some point even The Departed did a scene like that but it was so much better. Again, not a fair comparison, but His story he left. made up to, to cover it was was great
1: though. Just, I, yeah. I grew up in, in Europe, that would appeal to, to his guys, a yeah. That was an interesting
2: it, sequence in the movie
1: he 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 made it work he made it work all right uh well i'm glad you appreciated the movie
2: um, it's a good i watched it with my wife we made fun of it for long stretches of it that's another thing it there's there's stuff that is is a 90s movie that that has tropes that are easy to make fun of again it's not to the de- i mean it didn't really impact the movie that much but it's now a movie you can watch and kind of laugh at at parts unfortunately i i don't i don't agree with that at all i don't i don't think i ever have laughed at that movie yeah but you love it i can understand you know i mean mean, you know i'm sure there are people who could say the same thing about apollo 13 but if you love the movie that's one thing if you're coming at it with fresh eyes and you're you know you didn't grow up with it i think there are parts that you can pick out and think that's a little bit over the top and ridiculous again not a bad thing though it made it made it made the experience maybe more entertaining
1: uh, I did also see on the IMDb trivia page that Joe Stone said the one thing he has to say for the film is that he wished there was more Anne in the actual
2: script. Well, that's interesting, because something I read about the movie is that in real life, his wife had moved out and was they never saw each other like that was also an entirely fabricated part of the. Yeah, story. they moved to like the West Coast. Right. There was no scene of him coming home and banging her on the stairs. Like that was that's that's a total, you know, movie thing. Like that wasn't real. Well, that was still like when he was
0: early in like the uh every day of his life is with the those guys. That probably that probably still could well, have though, happened
2: before they moved. But we just but, talked about how he must have spent a lot of years integrating himself with the barber and in the neighborhood, right? Yeah, but that 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 doesn't require you to not
0: be home for like any holiday. But when you're when you're kind of like under the wing of a of a high ranking mob boss, then i mean that's your life at that point like i mean before that but like the probably couple of two three years before he actually meets lefty i'm sure that he still was able to uh go home to his family every night
2: because he was just a jeweler that 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 was his that was his cover i'm i'm sure you're right And, and there's validity to that i the problem though is that for me those were the weakest scenes in the movie like that was a totally obligatory character cliche and every time he went back to Anne Heche and Anne Heche, R.I.P., tra- you know, tra- tragedy, how, how she died. But like and she's actually not that bad in the movie. But those scenes always felt like, OK, I'm going to get up and get a glass of water. Like they're just not important at all to the movie. Uh, so
1: apparently Joe Pistone said in an interview in the special features on the DVD that he was supposed to be undercover for a few months. It ended up being six years and his family moved uh, across the country after nine months and he rarely saw them. And it was like a two-year period in between seeing him at one point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could
1: see that. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. I, I love the the discussion we're having around it. I, the, these are always like my favorite parts of of the deep dives. Is us just like dissecting the movie like this, and the categories are fun too. But I always like this part. Well, let's get into some of some of the categories and some of the stuff we're gonna be talking about. And the first thing we're talking about is something we talked about five years ago apparently and uh that is we're gonna do a mount rushmore of uh the highest war johnny depp performances now there's a story behind this back in episode eight of the podcast which came out oh i don't even know when um i could find it somewhere but in episode eight of the podcast uh we did a segment where we just talked about we did this at one point where we talked about the highest war of a certain actor and we each like submitted one and uh we did highest war Johnny Depp and back when we cared about how long our podcast was running um we decided that we, we were going we to leave care? this up uh, this uh segment on the cutting room floor because the the episode got too long and so it was never heard but apparently back in episode 8 we did do a uh, a list of the highest war Johnny Depp performances.
2: It's the Batgirl of the Almost Sideways podcast. It, 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 is, it really is. It really It wasn't was even a power ranking. There. It was just
0: a, a, a sane one, right?
1: Yeah, it wasn't a power rankings or anything. It was each of us saying one. I don't even know if all three of us were on this episode. Uh, it came out on uh, uh, November 14th, 2017. So almost five years ago. Uh, it was an episode where we uh, let's see here. Were were we all there? Yeah, we were all there, I think. Yep, we were all there, and we reviewed uh, Thor Ragnarok. We did a recasting of Goodwill Hunting. Um, Zach had to watch Catch Me If You Can, mm. and uh, we did a power rankings of uh, the greatest dark comedies of all time. I mean, it sounds like a banger of an episode. So, absolutely <laughs> it does. Um, but Me- we're going to do a Mount Rushmore of Johnny Depp War, and uh, and his highest war performances. So, uh, I think I'm going to go first. This is this is an interesting list because I mean, doing doing like greatest Johnny Depp performances and then doing like highest war performances, it's a very different thing.
0: Oh yeah, I don't know if they any they would overlap at all for me. <laughs> yeah, um,
1: I'm gonna go with it. I, I I assume we're gonna pick a non-negotiable at the end or a, a consensus pick at the end. Uh, I am going with maybe his most iconic, but it's because it's it's so him and that's Captain Jack Sparrow, uh, which I think is the one I picked five years ago. Um, Probably. Probably. But I mean, he he got an Oscar nomination for a a role in an adapted from a Disney ride movie. I mean, th- this he's he's just magnetic in it, and it almost became a part of his persona. Uh, he was able to portray a character like this in a way that I don't think anybody else really could. And so uh, my my submission is Captain Jack Sparrow. Why is the rum gun? That's what I'm going
2: with. Hard to argue. Zach, what do you got? All right. Well, I really want to go with a performance from a movie I've never seen, and that is Dead Man, um, because I've always wanted to see Dead Man. Now, according to our website, Todd gave it one and a half stars, which I'm not surprised by. I didn't get it, it. Some people really hate it. It's not supposed to be one of Jarmusch's good movies, but I've heard it's like a really weird totally esoteric anachronistic like black and white indie western um can i go with that i I think i have that movie on
1: my dvd shelf but i haven't watched it yet is
2: that performance worthy todd no
0: oh he's got several others that are actual
2: john depp war performances okay well in that case uh i don't know exactly the what what this list is trying to go after uh because i feel like a lot of his performances are pretty high war. I mean, I, I think Terry understands it better. I would go with who's, uh, uh, what's eating Gilbert grape, but I don't know if that's a high war performance. It's just a really good performance. Same with um, Donny
0: Brasco. I, I, I don't think we would choose this for highest war.
2: Yeah. I think instead I'm going to go with, um, Edward Scissorhands. Why not? Uh, you know, it's, I, who else could play Edward Scissorhands? I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird role. Um, it's a, it's a, Paul Dano. Yeah, Paul Dano probably, but Paul Dano could do anything. That's true. So so could Lakeith Stanfield and Adam Driver. Was Paul Dano born when
1: Edward Scissorhands came out?
0: Lakeith Stanfield is uh, Edward Scissorhands is inspired. Actually, like that, that, that that would be brilliant.
2: But like, isn't there that one movie where some some woman is talking about how she has sexual fantasies about Edward Scissorhands? I can't remember. Like he's sort of he's sort of a, a a sex icon in Edward Scissorhands. I don't think Paul Dano could have pulled that off. He's kind of a great stick man in that movie. All the old ladies in that manufactured community are in love with him. Like he really gets it on with the mills. So like um, I think that element would be difficult to convey by another actor. Certainly not Paul Dano. Uh, keep Stanfield in, maybe, but uh, yeah. All right. So we got Jack Sparrow.
1: We got Edward Scissorhands, Todd. Lots of people think that him as Jack Sparrow is very attractive as well.
0: Well, I mean, c- can we go with movies we haven't seen? Because I think we all can agree that it's Minamata, the unofficial official Oscar nomination, because <laughs> it, he was in the movie. So it was officially not official that he got, that the movie was a nom- nominated Oscar movie. I don't know. I mean, that would be what I would say. But uh, uh, I've never seen it, so I'm going that's with a of course. With the stable. I'm of course going with Rango because, I mean he looks like an iguana kind of i mean i i don't i, I don't know who else could it, it's like when we did this for uh, for jack black it's like of course it's kung fu panda because he looks like a panda he sounds like a panda he acts like a panda i think johnny Depp kind of acts like a lizard and uh rango i think is perfect it's i mean there's no one else that could have done that
2: you know what's really fun is to look at his imdb uh credits and you realize that paul dano actually could have played all of these roles like, he could have also been Ed Wood. He could have also been Alice in Wonderland. He could have also been um, Finding Neverland. Maybe Paul Dano is just the the uh, you know, reincarnated Johnny Depp.
0: I always, like, uh, on my article about uh, the future of Hollywood leading men and women, I said that was Anton Yelchin. I, I thought he was the next Johnny Depp, which I think he could have done a lot of this stuff, too. Mm, yeah. One thing I noticed looking at Johnny Depp's filmography... Uh,
1: I think Johnny Depp may have set a record for playing the most titular characters.
0: I think that's actually a thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, because because we, we've we got a couple. We've got Edward Scissorhands. We've got Rango. We've got Donny Brasco.
0: Gilbert Grape. Don Cray, Juan DeMarco. Don Juan
1: DeMarco. Ed Wood. Sweeney Todd. Um, Crybaby. Um, I mean, you not can, Alice
2: in Wonderland.
1: Not Alice in Wonderland but a ridiculous amount of, of titular characters.
2: Can I just say something? I've never liked Johnny Depp because he took away two Academy award nominations from Paul Giamatti, his co-star in Donnie Brasco. I, I've always, I've always felt like that was, uh, you know, something irritating.
1: Mordecai. Apparently he, that was the character's <laughs>
0: name.
2: Yeah. I forgot about Mordecai. <laughs> So what you're saying in
0: 04 and what what other one? 03? 03, yeah. Well, that was the one that Splendor. took away. That would, like, yeah, but Jude Law took that nomination. Like, you didn't know if this was gonna nominate for that. I mean, I
2: will admit it was, it, you know, sideways. He would, should have, would have. American Splendor was a little less likely. It wasn't really a big Oscar push, but I've I've never sat well with either of those Oscar nominations for Johnny Depp. Those were total populist decisions to try to bring in audiences to the show.
1: All right, we got to come up with a consensus here for the fourth pick. I, I'm, I'm thinking Ed Wood. That's the one I, I'll. Uh... Yeah,
2: that was the other one I was thinking of too. I was, I was going to say Ed Wood too. Yeah. Okay. I, How have we not deep here. dive Ed Wood? That's a great. We all love that movie, right?
1: I oh, we could next year. No, two years. No, two years. Two years. When it's thirty years old. I was thinking Ed Wood. The other one I was thinking was Sweeney Todd. I think I think he's pretty he's pretty magnetic in that, and he he carries a persona in that movie that that few people can.
0: But we gotta agree if if he wasn't in Minamata, we would not know what that movie was, and it would oh not no not at all in a top five uh, fan favorite movies <laughs> of twenty twenty one.
1: I I, th- I feel like that's a that's like a a cager where and if it wasn't for Johnny Depp being in it, it would have never even been made.
2: I would say, like Cage's filmography, there's some ones in there that no one has ever heard of, uh, and probably shouldn't ever approach. Unless...
0: Well, he he had his run with Kevin Smith. <laughs> that probably doesn't help some of the, like he was in Yoga Hosers, right? Oh yeah. See, he was playing that same character he did in Tusk. And I don't know. Yeah, he's he's got he's got some gems in there.
1: All right, let's uh let's recast this. Uh, so recasting now, Donnie Brasco, starting with the uh, the titular alias, Joe Pistone slash Donnie Brasco would be played by who? Todd.
0: Well, I have two written down. One is like the serious pick, and one is the one that I would actually want to see. Uh, the serious pick is Jamie Bell. I I, I think it's he's in the right um, range. I, I think he could do he could do that kind of thing. But uh, the one that I want to see is Jim Cummings. Because, I mean, he's a friend of the podcast, and I think that seeing him, I i mean, he's played cops, but I think him as an FBI guy, I, I mean, it would push him really far, but I think it'd be super entertaining. It w- he wouldn't be as dry as uh, as Donnie is portrayed in, in the movie, but I think we,
2: that'd be something else.
1: That would be fascinating. It would be. All right, Zach, who do you have?
2: All right. Well, one of one of my beefs with Donnie Brasco also is I think Johnny Depp looks way too young to be a uh, a FBI undercover officer with three kids and a wife. Um, I don't know. It's, it's strange. It's only like five years removed from Edward Scissorhands. I, I know he's got a teenage a teenage. Daughter, yeah, t- right? Teenage, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, because she has a, a boyfriend. So I went with yeah. someone a little bit older, someone who, according to IMDb, is 42, I think. No, 43. And that is uh, Anders Danielson Lee, or Lie, the guy mm. from uh, the Joaquin Trier uh, movies. Um, you know, I'm still kind of waiting for him to make a great uh, American movie at some point. But I feel like he's um, someone who looks like he works undercover for the FBI or could work undercover for the FBI.
1: That would be interesting. All right. I have two written down also. Uh, mainly because I felt it was it was kind of unfair to um, pick the uh same person recast as the lead in the in two straight recastings, and that's Aaron Taylor Johnson. Um, <laughs> I
2: thought
0: about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, he'd be a great Donnie Brasco. Um, but the other one I wrote down is Bill Skarsgard.
2: Yeah. Here's the thing Donnie could be Donnie's not a high war character. So, is there a bad answer to this question? Who would be terrible as Donnie? Jonah Hill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Jonah Hill could do anything. I don't think he'd do this. Valid
1: valid point. I saw hold on. I saw something on the uh on the IMDb trivia page here about Yeah,
2: that's that's not or Steve-O maybe. So <laughs>
1: actors considered for uh, for donnie brasco were uh, Alec baldwin nicolas cage and john cusack and then um okay apparently uh johnny depp was cast because he looks italian even though he's not um he, doesn't he has look a great he has a great quote here i i can't find it uh but it was something like uh where is it oh here it is yeah one of the reasons giant up was cast as brasco was that he looked italian in reality he says he's quote one part cherokee and the rest mutt so which i can see i can see him being like mostly native american okay yeah um lefty played by al pacino todd who do you got
0: well, I mean, you always do this, but you say you always have the the younger guy. Uh, I mean, I think Johnny Depp could have played Lefty. I, I think it'd be a, I think it'd be awesome. Yeah, I considered that. Uh, but the one that I want to say is Bobby Cannavale. He's he's sort of is mm. the the up and coming like guy who's in all of these. He was like you know Boardwalk Empire. He's I mean he he's he's the the mob guy now, and he's never done a character that it was it'd be as tragic as Lefty, but it would be something that I think that he could he could really sink his teeth into and, and do well.
2: I like it. I like it. Zach? So I went with someone who uh, is a poser or would try to pose uh, in the mob unsuccessfully. And maybe he would wear a nose prosthetic. I'm not sure that's what got him his Oscar nomination. I went with Steve Carell because Michael Scott is a pretty pathetic character and uh andy is not the world's most respected character and i feel like you know with his voice and with those his kind of mannerisms i feel like the mob would kind of make fun of him
1: well i mean if he shows up on set as prison mike yeah i mean that's it's over i'm prison mike
2: (laughs) maybe he burned his foot on his george foreman grill or something yeah yeah Yeah. fell into a koi Uh, pond
1: so so Todd mentioned Johnny Depp. I think it's also possible that this isn't the one I wrote down, but I think it'd be interesting. Giamatti as Lefty would be interesting.
2: Yeah. (laughs) As a
0: mobster.
1: (laughs) I I mean, kind of the the loser of the mob, though.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. Someone with someone who's, you know, angry, uh, you know, at the literary establishment for not uh, accepting his (laughs) novel.
1: (laughs) But the the one I actually wrote down was Bob Odenkirk.
2: Yeah, that's good too. Kind of in the same vein. Yeah.
0: it's it's kind of yeah. He's the, almost more of a sunny,
2: like a sunny red.
0: Almost like I mean, he could be he could do that too. I mean, I think he's a little too yeah. old for Lefty at this point, maybe. But he's yeah, right it,
1: around the same age as as Pacino was.
0: I mean, apparently I, I Pacino would, was I supposed
1: to be Donnie Brasco, and then uh, maybe it took I'm, too long to make the movie, and so he moved over to being Lefty, and then he
0: recommended Johnny Depp. How old was Joseph Stone actually in 1978? That is a good question. He was born in 1939. He's still alive. Um, but he was so yeah, 30, right, around 40s. 40, right around 40. Yeah. Um, so Pacino probably would have been. Yeah, he would have definitely been too old then. But two uh two other
1: actors, two other actors that were. Oh no, wait, that's not for Lefty. My bad. Those that was for the next one. I was going to say other people considered for the role. I don't think anyone else was considered for the role uh, because it was Pacino's. Okay. Well then let's move on to, uh, to Sonny black. who's played by Michael Madsen. Others considered for the role were Ray Liotta and Gabriel Byrne, which both would have been fascinating.
0: Wow. Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. That, that would have, that is sort of like a Dean Keaton sort of mysterious bad guy kind of thing. Mm-hmm uh, uh Sunny Black is. I mean, I, I think there's wait, only one Zach, choice. Did you,
1: Zach, did you say you're lefty, or did I skip you?
0: Steve Curl. Uh, Steve Carell. Oh,
1: Steve Curl, That's right. That's right. I didn't skip you. Okay, go ahead, Zach or there,
0: Todd. There's one. There's one option for Sunny Black, and that's John Burnthal. If this movie was made now, it would be John Burnthal. He would <laughs> slay it. And he. Would, it would be perfect.
1: That's not bad. That's not bad. I think I like mine better.
0: There's no way, dude. I mean, it is John Bernthal that it was, it was something like it was written for him,
2: but okay, we'll see. Zach, I went with Michael Shannon. <laughs> Ooh, I think he's too old. He yeah, might, he might yeah. be a little old, but you know, that's now if this movie was made in 20 years, we could go with Michael Gandolfini because frankly, James Gandolfini should have been Sonny Black. I mean.
1: Tony Probably. Soprano isn't is kind of Sunny Black.
2: He is. He's a lot like Sunny Black. Exactly.
1: All right. So my Sunny Black is Oscar Isaac.
0: Yeah. I mean he's he's done the, he's done that kind of thing before. Like he was more of a repressed uh, kind of guy in you know, most of the year, but yeah, he obviously could do it. Yeah. All right.
1: Maggie, played by the late Anne Heche. Todd.
0: I don't know if this is really that hard to recast. I said Olivia Wilde. I, I haven't seen her act in a while. And I think that would... I, I, I think she could belong in the the mob movie kind of realm. The same way that like uh, Laurie Bracco did. And uh, I, think, I, I think she'd be probably a better performance than N.H.
1: Well, we're all going to see her act in a couple months when Don't Worry Darling comes out.
0: Exactly.
2: Zach? Yeah, this is the most thankless role uh, ever. So I just went with an actress that uh, would would bring something to the role and would make her scenes shine a bit, and that's of course Aud- Aubrey Plaza, because I, I, you know she could do anything with any kind of thankless role. So.
1: You should check out her performance in Emily the Criminal.
2: I'm good. curious why you didn't like Emily the Criminal. It's getting good reviews, and it uh, is. You you have not given a thumbs down to a movie since 2011, and <laughs> uh, I just I want to know what really ticked you off about it. So I'm, I'm I may go watch it. Who doesn't like Aubrey Plaza? I, oh, I I if you read the review, I loved Aubrey Plaza. the the The
1: script is just kind of eh, like the story isn't isn't there to support her performance.
0: Okay. so Terry wouldn't like that that movie. What was it
2: called? Black something. That yeah, I, Black, Bear. Black Bear. Terry needs Black to Bear. watch it too, because Todd loves it. I hated it. That's that's what Terry really needs to watch.
1: <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, Maggie. It, it's it's an easily recastable role. At the same time, Anne Hesh is pretty good in this movie. Like it's it's not like we're saying she's not good, but it's it's very easy to recast her. Um, I went with Jodie Comer.
0: Yeah, yeah, I.
2: That's a good pick. All right, again, who exactly. would who would who would mess up the role? Yeah, exactly. It's like exactly. it's like you know, I, I, Rachel Rebel Wilson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would there pick Rebel Wilson. Donny Brasco starring Jonah Hill and Rebel Wilson, and, or Rachel Sened.
0: Yeah, <laughs> she, she would screw that up too. <laughs>
2: Oh, I would watch it though. Man. I, you know, I'd be, I'd be down with it. Steve O and Rachel Sennett.
1: All right, that's the well, movie I want. Zach wanted to recast uh, Paul Giamatti's role as FBI technician. Uh, do, do, uh, Todd, do you have one for this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't really think the age matters for this. He's, a, no, he's an FBI you. tech. Uh, well, that's
1: I, because I, Giamatti was thirty and looked like he was fifty in nineteen ninety seven.
0: He almost looked a little older than he does in sideways. I, yeah, I'm gonna. I, I said Chris O'Dowd. I, I, I think he, he, he looks like he could be a <laughs> like an FBI tech or some kind. And I think those the lines that he has would, would be really funny if Chris O'Dowd said them. I, I think he would Not be good. In the,
1: <laughs> he'd be good in the Tim Blake Nelson role, too.
0: He can play both.
1: <laughs> he can play both at the same time. <laughs> Why were there two of them? I mean, there really didn't need to be.
0: There really didn't. Uh, all
1: The right. But the, it's funny that those are the two most recognizable faces in the entire movie. But besides Depp and Pacino, are this one scene in, in the hotel room. All right, Zach.
2: Um, I went with Tony from the Up series. Thank you for saying age doesn't matter. <laughs> yes, I, I, I want him to like be you know wiretapping people. He's like, I won't. I try to do the three F's. I found him. I f- him and I forget him. I couldn't do the three. I couldn't do the third F. I couldn't forget about her. And uh, you know, forget about it. And uh, you know, maybe get some autographs going, and you know, talk about his career as a jockey. You know, this won't be a jockey. I just won't be a jockey. I still say best moment of any of the Up series movies
1: is when his uh, his horse racetrack turned into the Olympic stadium. And Tony is a reason that the Cockney accent uh, stereotype exists. Yeah. All right. Well, my pick for uh, for the FBI technician is someone who has played the man in the chair before that it would be Jacob Batalon who is uh Peter Parker's best friend in the recent Spider-Man movies.
0: I mean the guy in the is. chair.
1: That's what that's what he says. He's like I I'm I'm Peter Parker's guy in the chair.
2: Who? The who Ned. About? Ned oh, from man. the from the, the Spider-Man the movies. The Asian kid? Yeah. Okay. That's who I'm going with. I After. like my pick better. Your pick
1: is your pick is is definitely better.
2: This was this was one of your great recastings, Terry. You were like four for four, but you, you, you couldn't stick the landing. <laughs> Ned from the Spider-Man movies, yeah. really? Yeah, I think we can um, do a little um, better than Ned. What, what, is, what does what does forget anyone, about it mean?
0: Who would hire huh.
2: Ned at the FBI? <laughs> I mean, I do get that this because he can he he, you know, he understands computers. F,
1: I mean, he it like if this movie was made today, this would be a young computer nerd. It, I mean,
2: would, be, a, a, it would be. It would be Giamatti. Why would they're, they're gonna hire a seventeen? No, that, that's the dude's like twenty eight years old. You didn't read. The, we talk <laughs> about.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> he. Uh, we didn't say who we wouldn't want for the role. That's what we were talking about with Donnie <laughs> and wife. So who tell us who you'd actually want for the role, Terry? You, you got the you. You misheard me.
1: I, I think I think he works. I stand by my pick. The rest of them are are probably better, but
2: I would pick Rebel Wilson uh, before. Uh, Peter hey, Hi. Hey,
1: what what does he mean by? <laughs> 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 Who would Nicholas Cage play? I mean, he almost apparently he almost played Donnie back 25 years ago.
0: I mean, I can see that. I mean, I I wrote down Lefty and Sonny Black. I think I think both of those are definitely within his. Depending on the year,
1: Lefty um, would be fascinating.
0: I think Shu era Cage would play Sunny Red. He could
1: play. He could play that. I don't too.
0: know if he's actually old enough to play Sonny Red. Even
1: oh no, you know who he'd play. He would be. Um, he would be Richie Gazzo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Fredo. He'd <laughs> be. <laughs> yeah, he, he, some of some of that stuff does remind me of like uh, honeymoon in Vegas era Nick Cage, but it, the, he'd be too young for that. Like that guy is such a screw up. It'd be, uh, it'd be awesome. <laughs> but, I also, but he
1: also has, has this like this like wild side to him, like when he walks up, he's like "Hey, everybody!" Yeah, I mean that.
0: <laughs> he wouldn't screw up and call Joe by actually his name, though. That's true. <laughs> Nick Cage would. Nick Cage has never made that mistake in a movie.
2: <laughs> what what I would, does Adam think this movie's about? Oh wait, I, I just want to add. I would add. I would recast the lion as Andy Circus. <laughs> Of course. obviously because obviously, obviously it would be a cgi line in the 2022 remake
1: yes i mean well i mean it was it was originally played by caleb i think it even said introducing caleb as the line but
0: okay that, that yeah. was what the is thing adam... in the mid 90s like in the edge it was like and and uh and bob the bear as <laughs> the yeah, bear yeah, yeah. or something
1: mm-hmm. all right yeah what does adam think this movie is about
0: I think he thinks it's a somehow off of Donnie Darko. <laughs> I, a I don't prequel know that he, maybe pre- one of Richard Kelly's
2: diff, different extended <laughs> cuts. This was one of the extended cuts.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something like that. I, I I don't know what he actually would think. I mean, because it's a character's name. I don't know how he could. Yeah, I know. I know. Twist that to have uh, Hillary Swank in there. <laughs>
1: See, the problem is you, you look at like the you look at the uh, the poster for this and it's kind of undeniable that it, it's going to be a mob movie when you see when you see Johnny Depp and, and Al Pacino in in a poster for this or like even if you look at like the DVD cover, like that's the most obvious of them all. But um yeah, I didn't really write anything down, but I like that idea that it's a prequel to Donnie Darko, but it's like the Korean prequel where the last name comes first, because that's the only reason <laughs> it would have any any connection is if they both had the last name of Donnie. I
0: oh, know, that, that, was, that was the issue.
1: Brasco Donnie. Darko Donnie. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Zach, do you have anything? Yeah, both of those are better than anything I could come up with. So let's just stick with those.
1: <laughs> All right. <clears throat> um, I, I have nothing to say. I'll just take one of each of yours.
2: Uh, highest war
1: performance.
2: Zach. Um, I think the highest war performance for me goes to Bruno Kirby as Nicky, because I, I, watching the movie, I was like, is this Joe Pesci's brother? How come that's never happened before? Like, wow, uh, it's the Joe Pesci Memorial Award for, for this movie goes to Bruno Kirby. Mm-hmm. Bru- Bruno Kirby was this is only the third movie I've ever seen him in. Uh, he was in City Slickers. And when Harry Met Sally, I don't know what He else was the in Godfather Guy... three, wasn't he? He was he was oh, like young Clemenza, right? Oh, I didn't, well, I didn't, I didn't recall that, but uh, yeah, th- this is a great, this is a great Bruno Kirby role. You get the high pitched, an, an obnoxious um, mobster who gets whacked for not kicking it up to the mob at the end of the movie, um, except they couldn't hire Joe Pesci. So they got Bruno Kirby instead. It's a great consolation prize and it's a high war performance. Maybe. Godfather 2,
0: sorry, not 3.
2: He was in Godfather 2? Wow.
0: Um, he was young clemenza i'm pretty sure right yeah
1: you're right so according to imdb's trivia page uh mike newell's first choice for nicky was joe pesci and this became the second and this became the second movie that bruno kirby beat out joe pesci the first being godfather part two where they wanted joe pesci for young clemenza wow
2: when you can't get joe pesci you get bruno kirby bruno kirby (laughs) that's why it's a high war performance
1: (laughs) very very true very true all right todd highest war
0: i mean i guess i'll just say pacino like he Mm -hmm. he's he's doing a variation of ricky roma i know zach said he's not exactly ricky roma but a lot of his line delivery is is very ricky roma i i honestly think pacino should have been nominated for best actor for this like I, I i don't know we didn't really talk about the oscars that much but yeah i mean it had one nomination i i think it easily could have had a best actor nomination with the screenplay nomination it could have been nominated for best picture it could have gotten some like costume nominations something but i think pacino is the driving force of this movie and it is his involvement that probably got the movie made and he's he's fantastic it, it's it is a, a a quieter Pacino, but something where he still brings the gravitas of being the, the mob guy because it's because it's Al Pacino.
1: Yeah, that's what yep. I had written down too. But um, I'll I'll go with someone else because I had a couple in mind. And the other one I'm gonna go with is Michael Madsen, a Sonny Black. Uh, I think he he fits this role more than any other role I've ever seen him in. Like this is if you were to say what is like the iconic Michael Madsen, like if you want to see Michael Madsen at his best, it's Sonny Black in this movie. Uh, just because everything he brings to any role that he portrays is accentuated and brought out perfectly in Sunny Black. Um, and so uh, that that's, this is like his quintessential role. I mean, everything that he has done as an actor is, um, all comes back, I think, to what he can do in a role like this. So, and he was one of the hardest ones to recast because he's so magnetic, he's so dynamic. Uh, just looking at him, you you're like, yeah, that's an Italian mobster, and he's gonna be the the chosen one. So, Michael Madsen.
2: Yeah, I still say Gandolfini should have played that role, but he's good with he he does good with what he 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 has
1: yeah all right the bill paxton memorial worst performance award goes to who todd
0: uh i want to say zach Gre- grenier great grenier i don't know how you actually pronounce that name but like usually he's like a really high like war performance like he always plays the same character Like he should have been an fbi tech with paul giamatti and tim Blake nelson but instead he's like the marriage counselor and he's I don't know what he's really doing there it, it it is it seems like the furthest from what he's good at uh i mean i mean it's like bruno kirby yeah he's in a different movie than everybody else like he, he's a, he's in goodfellas but like zach grenier is like okay i mean i i don't know I, I i could have had anybody else play that role and i would have been totally fine with it especially because he always is the fbi guy
1: It's a good point uh my worst performance goes to rocco sisto as a uh, richie gazo I mean, the, the worst scenes of the movie are when he's on screen just because I, and I think that part of that is intentional. Like when he, like when he walks on screen, you're supposed to go, what the hell? Uh, but at the same time he overdoes it and it's, a, it's way too over the top and it could have been done so much better by someone with a little more, with a little more acting chops, a little more restraint. Um, yeah, that's my pick, Zach.
2: Yeah, obviously that's the right pick. The problem is, you know, it's like chicken or the egg, right? He's meant to be someone who is literally in the movie, in the world of the movie, overacting. So, is it is it the 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 flaw of the actor, or is it just like I, I'm not sure how to interpret that? I can. But see,
1: if this yeah. is like a if this is like Nick Cage, then you look at him and you go, oh, that's like that's like minor character of the film award nominee not not oh this is like one of the worst performances of the movie
2: i think he's obviously the right answer but it has not it has an asterisk next to it which is that maybe that was the intent all along um i'm gonna go with uh james russo as Polly because i literally remember nothing about that character
1: i remember <laughs> looking at him and thinking i know this guy i feel like i've seen this guy before and then i looked at It was James Russo. I'm like, nope, that's not who I thought I was thinking of. And I'm in a lot of
0: he's always
2: like just like the asshole or like the the badass in a lot of movies. Yeah, I I remember nothing. I also remember nothing about Tony Lip in this movie. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I didn't even know he was in the movie until I saw the credits later. Um again we talked about that in our godfather deep dive because he's in that too, right? He is. Well, he's in everything. Um I don't know, like James Russo is listed in the, in the credits above Aunt Heche and uh, he has uh, more, more scenes like, for sure. I was going
1: to say, he's in like every scene of the movie because like, Sonny Black always has two guys with him. He has Nikki and he has uh, and he has Polly. It's just James Russo, like maybe he definitely has less lines than Aunt Heche but he has more scenes.
0: <laughs> he's basically Mr. French but without the comedic timing.
2: But imagine like Tony Sirico in that role. Like that is a great performance right there, but this guy just did, does nothing with it. So apparently, Rocco Sisto
1: was in three episodes of The Sopranos. He played young Junior Soprano.
2: Nice, like when uh, when they're at the carnival and they're fleeing from the FBI in the flashback. He
1: had he had one episode in 1999, one episode in 2001, and one episode in 2007.
2: That sounds about right.
1: I still need to watch it. I
2: remember the young junior did look a lot like a young version of junior. So he's good at acting in, in some mob capacity. All right. Amazing. Larry, big Tim, high roller
1: minor character. of The film award goes to, and I get to go first. Uh, I did. I did write down uh Philly lucky because it was played by Tony lip, but my actual answer is, um, is let's see here is uh terry serpico as strip club owner um because i i just think that's a really it's a pretty great scene that the one scene he has where uh where pacino comes back is a fugazi uh and uh he's like no what what are you talking about that that's a real diamond there it's like it's a fugazi my guy says it's a fugazi and i I almost want to say I need to go back and watch it again, but I feel like he turns and looks at Donnie and calls him Joe at that point. It's like, Joe, help me out here. Like, I feel like he said that I might be wrong, but I thought he said that, but, uh, yeah, he's my, he, he was a great character and it's a great scene. So
2: Zach, uh, I went with Gretchen mall as Sonny's girlfriend. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, she, well, it was very interesting seeing Gretchen. It was a little shocking seeing Gretchen Moll like that's Gretchen Moll. It's like from Boardwalk Empire and from the notorious Betty Page. And it's like she's in a role where she literally Rivers. has no lines, and wow. uh, we yeah, have rounders, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she's in a bathing suit. She goes on the boat and, and these girls are here to party, man. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great moment. I want to know more about who dates Sonny Black. It's interesting that Sonny Black does not ever want to go to Miami and yet he already has an entourage of women, um, a harem of women that want to join him on the boat. So it's, Maybe it says more about Sonny than it does Gretchen Mole. but yeah, I want to know more about Gretchen Mole. Let's get her in the movie a little bit more. This was this was the era when she was the big thing in Hollywood. How is she only in this movie for three seconds?
0: Well, I don't as know. Jimmy if you Dugan really says call her anything
2: worth as Jimmy Dugan says anything
1: worth doing is worth doing right. That's that's how Sonny Black approaches Miami. I
0: don't know if and, it's really actually a girlfriend.
1: That's the thing.
0: I mean, we can get into that when we talk about uh, the Spider Stick Man Award, but you know
1: and seeing seeing Gretchen Mullen in this is like seeing Olivia Wilde in The Girl Next Door or Alpha Dog or something like that
0: or seeing uh Meg Ryan in Top Gun
1: yeah. yeah yeah there you go But she Similar. actually gets a scene in that movie Similar hair Similar hair Todd who do you
0: have Uh I uh Tim Curley played by Zeljko Ivanek uh, he he's a, he's a fun character he they gave him probably more scenes than he than he needed to have but like he's having a great time he's he's the one like sort of like he seems like he's almost buddies with joe and so when he's getting like uh interviewed or debriefed in some scenes like he's just the one that is sort of i don't know he's having a good time and zolch Zul- Ivanek is he's awesome in everything and it was a, it was a good role for him
1: that's a good pick he is awesome in everything. My favorite of his is uh, the John Adams miniseries. He's the guy who doesn't want to sign the Declaration of Independence.
2: I also thought about Val Avery as Traficante. Because that guy's just having fun, right? he If this movie is in the world of Boogie Nights, he's obviously the colonel. And he is just like... He, you know, he's the kind of guy that is is going to show up at a boat party. I, I mean, guess, he's, he's Mickey Mantle, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that the whole... Maybe my well we're talking about favorite scenes but like the boat scene was the closest this movie got to being the mob movie I wanted it to be I wanted the mobsters with their shirts off you know going in the swimming pool I mean really this whole movie should have taken place in Miami it would have made it a lot more fun um but yeah that's that you know th- that's a character I'd want to know more about all right Zach spider stickman the spider stick man um, in this movie uh I think Think, i think i wrote it down here well for one thing it's uh possibly joe's daughter's boyfriend damn you okay that's what
3: i was gonna girlfriend. say like, yeah
2: yeah <laughs> wow. i mean not that there's a lot of stick men that, that says more about the lack of stick I mean, what? Men she's like 12 quality, or 13
1: but... the boyfriend's probably in high school uh, it, it's yeah
2: it's definitely not. It's definitely not lefty because he has cancer of the cock. So that's that's a real red flag. Is horse sticks. cock? How is it not <laughs> a stickman? He has cancer, man. You got to think that that imp- impairs his ability. He's got the horse, a cock of a horse. I don't it's know. Like, it's like what Jack says. Do you have trouble performing? I mean, <laughs> that's what I would wonder about that character, and it just kind of matches his whole demeanor, his whole dour demeanor, you know. But I do think I do think there is something worth saying about Joe because this is the best staircase sex scene since the history of violence. The only thing that's missing Before is the cheerleader outfit. Violence, technically, yes,
3: yeah.
1: that is the only thing missing.
2: <laughs> Wait, what? I mean, What's can... missing? A cheerleader, oh, outfit? The cheerleader outfit. cheerleader <laughs> outfit. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, you could really hurt yourself doing that. You know, not that I speak from personal experience, but like you got to think that, that that is a very injury-prone position. We need to ask uh, some stick men what they think of it, you know, like Burgess Meredith. It's
0: true.
1: It's true. Todd, do you have any, any stickers? Well, men I mean, well, it, it's, it's Sunny
0: Black. Like, I mean, like I said, like <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. L- Let's us talk about it. he's like when he's in prison, he had he had you know, he had a family, yeah, he, he had a mistress, and he had a mistress for his mistress. I mean, I me, and then obviously he shows up with Gretchen Mole, who who apparently is his girlfriend. I mean, he, he's got I mean, how? I don't know. I'm gonna say he's got ten women around the country, and probably at least eight of them are in New York. He's a he's a stick man.
2: He's got a girl in every port, taking nylons and Hershey bars on his way to the moon.
0: Yeah, that, that was that was what I was trying to quote, and I couldn't. I was not gonna quote the line. <laughs> so I'm glad you. I'm glad you're here and sober. <laughs>
2: uh.
1: I mean, those were the those were the ones I had written down, so I don't really have anything left. So. I mean, your strip club owner. I mean, I mean, he he could be he he could be, um. Yeah, maybe maybe Nikki with all the coke, I don't know.
2: I think what about what about Giamatti and Tim Blake Nelson? I was thinking no. them,
1: but they don't ever they don't ever leave the hotel room. They're they're too busy. Uh...
0: They're like the guys in the van when they're like when there's like a when there's like a a stickup going on or whatever, and they're like they're like watching the videos or something. Like those guys are not stickmen.
1: Uh, yeah, they, they might be the least the least stickmen of the group. Them and them and Ivanek. <laughs> um and uh oh and uh and and Gary Becker as uh as his uh his boss. Okay. Uh the Billy Bats douchebag goes to who todd.
0: Um well I'm gonna say I mean, there's actually a decent amount. I I I, I mean Bruno is a pretty big douchebag cuz I mean the the first reaction that that Donnie has is I I want to sock him. I mean and, and when when Donnie is still like trying to maintain his cool like the, his first reaction to, to like uh you know Sunny Red Sun is like yeah I I want to hit that guy. And so I, he's obviously as big I mean that's a big douche. It's got to be.
2: Didn't we come up with an award for the most punchworthy?
0: Yeah, I mean that's a different one. The, oh, the Robert yeah.
2: Forrester in uh, the descendants award.
0: We we yes. need to we need to
1: make that. I, I don't have it on the list. I need to put that on this list.
2: Uh I, my I have Billy... a few
0: written down for that.
1: Okay. My Billy Bats douchebag is uh is just sunny red. I mean, why ruin their uh their nightclub gig in Miami? I mean, you do that it's for one play. reason. Yeah, you do that for one reason, and that is just to screw with him. He they were trying to get out of your way. And so you screw them up so they have to be your problem again? That that is totally just a power play and it's a douche move. So mm.
2: that's
1: that's mm. my that's my douchebag.
2: Yeah, I, w- I have two. Uh one is a serious one, not one isn't as serious. Uh my serious one is the FBI which does not come off as well, pretty pretty, you know, good people in this movie. I mean, for one thing, giving him $500 is, is pretty bad. But also, why do they go to uh, the mob at the end of the movie and just disclose that you know Donnie Brasco was undercover the whole time? That's a That's pretty... A douche move, yeah. Total douche move. I'm trying Where, to entrap you know, them into right, something. Right, they're trying to get him to flip on other mobsters or something like that. But it's yeah, it's kind of like a botched power move in a way. Um, It just ends up endangering their own um, informant more and more. Right. And um, it's just, you know, and then obviously, I mean, the FBI does not have the seriousness that uh, Joe has on this whole assignment and look no further um, than, uh, you know, uh, Richie Gazzo. I mean, the guy is, is a joke. Uh, so it's, it's clear that the FBI is not doing anyone any favors. The, the not so serious pick that I had um, is uh, the Japanese Mater D, because, um, again, it's not fair what happens to him. But listen, OK, if people don't want to take off their shoes you should not have to force them to take off their shoes. And I actually think that that scene is a little bit racist, but not in the way that you would think it's racist. Like, okay, it's racist showing a Japanese guy getting beat up by a bunch of white guys. But I think it's a little racist in the sense that I feel like a Japanese businessman in the 70s would be more savvy and want to make money and not kick the mob out of his... Restaurant because of some kind of you know cultural value that's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so uh, it's douchey, but I think it's also just a little bit uh, insensitive and inaccurate. Hey, who won the war? Who won the war?
0: <laughs> I feel like now it'd be more what you're talking about, Zach. Not not then. I, mean, I feel like then it still probably would be they stick into their guns pretty good, but
2: that that they keep their shoes on. I I mean, okay, man. <laughs> dying a hill for it i don't know my other choice was
0: was uh was tommy ruggiero lefty's son the the drug addict obviously i mean he's a uh, douche the moment he opens the door you're just like yeah i mean i guess maybe it is sort of punchable
2: too can i change my stick man vote sure i'm gonna i'm gonna change it for my stick man goes to todd for having it number 69 on his all-time list
1: <laughs> i was gonna say i was gonna just give it give it to uh his power rankings in general but yeah,
0: to my Power Rankings, what?
1: Yeah, because it because or your your uh, your top one hundred for for it being number sixty nine.
3: Oh. Yeah, I, I
1: forgot I was gonna say that, and I and, and that's mm-hmm. your stick man. That's the stick, man. Okay, the the Robert Forster Memorial Most Punchable Character. <laughs> we're we're making this a thing. Um, mine goes to U.S. the U.S. Attorney, uh, played by James Bullitt. Who can't yeah. can't figure out that he's uh that he's undercover in that moment. I mean, yeah, Donny Brown, he, yeah. he does get punched. I mean, he my cock. he's most
0: punchable. He's, I mean, <laughs> what kind of a degenerate? grabbed my cock. I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that 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 might be the most clutch Richie Gazzo ever was. Is in that moment he he like <laughs> bends over to help pick him up. And he's like, he's
2: undercover. Come on, don't blow this. He's working. What are you doing? <laughs> You really could make the argument that almost everyone in this movie is a douche, though, because you could also say um, Sonny, Sonny Black's gang, because, like, they, they, they gang up on poor Lefty. Like they pull jokes on him. They're like burying him in the sand. I think the whole thing about the lion is just to make fun of him. Like they buy him the lion. He's like, this guy's just so inept. What's he going to do with a lion? And I read that in real life, the only way they got rid of that lion was by hiring kids. They left the lion at the park and they call, hired uh, kids to call the police and call it in. So at least it ended up in the zoo. But their
0: move of buying the line was way worse than that,
2: even because he thought he was about to get whacked. Right. Yeah, they just they just <laughs> jack with him the whole time. I think they they have some uh, high douchiness value in this movie.
1: Once again, yeah. inspired to cast Michael Corleone as Lefty. It's just... I just pissed my pants. No, no how other... Many,
2: how many times in this movie does Al Pacino soil himself in this movie? <laughs> that could be a drinking game also. A, no, I, I thought about recasting him as Preston from Jackass, but I feel like maybe that would go a little far.
1: Like, can you see Ray Liotta ever playing this character? Can you see Robert De Niro ever playing this character? Can you? I mean, anyone that plays like, can you see Jack Nicholson ever playing this
2: character? I anyone think there's who's ever little There's a little, there's like a little a bit of De Niro notch. in uh, the Irishman in in this character, a little bit.
0: Yeah, this also, I the, I I said that where the Irishman kind of took after this movie in some ways, but yeah, but it's hard right. to, it's hard to picture. Especially at this time, Pacino was nothing like this.
1: I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to this one first, uh,
0: because I think this might be unanimous. Wait, no, wait, wait, my punchable. Oh, sorry, I, go. go ahead I, have, I have some written down for punchable. One, uh, Nikki, because of uh, Bruno Kirby, has always got a. He's always had a punchable face. <laughs> Dean Blandford, the FBI, um, like head guy, like. Mm-hmm. The moment he shows up, he's, he's he's screwing he's screwing things up, and he's an asshole. I mean, he's he's like he's like I'm a Mormon. Clean it up. It's like whatever. You're talking about a guy who's undercover with the FBI, what he, or with the mob. What are you doing? And then also one I I also like is the guy in the dinosaur costume in Miami, because I mean he's wearing a dinosaur <laughs> costume. He's like a mascot for something, I guess, and everyone wants to punch the mascot. That's beautiful.
1: All right. The uh, the Regal Theater quote of the movie, it's pretty it's pretty unanimous. I feel like I, I don't know how forget about it wasn't in yeah,
0: that in, commercial in, in, in some yeah. form. Yeah, it the other, other one I could think of would be like uh, a pinch or a punch, <laughs> like if, like <laughs> like if they're getting their concessions or something. Like you want a pinch or a punch of salt or something.
1: <laughs> what did I say? Did I say a pinch?
0: <laughs> you don't make any sense, Donnie. I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that line needed to be in in that commercial. Okay, uh, best scene. Uh, is it to me? I think it's to me. Uh, forget about it. I mean that that's that the forget about it scene with Tim Blake Nelson and Paul Giamatti. I'm going to go as the best scene. It's just him sitting there having to explain what that means. It's just, it's just awesome. And then I, and then I love how Giamatti finishes. Paulie, forget about it. It's, it's, it's a great scene. There, there's a lot of good scenes, but that one, that one is like iconic.
0: Well, and uh, Donnie is using a Budweiser can to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the cool down, yeah, on his head, which, uh, uh, which yeah. I think is awesome. Budweiser borderline MVP. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, what's the best scene?
2: Uh, there, yeah, there are a lot of good scenes in this movie. Um, I mean, the unintentional favorite scene is the counseling scene with Joe and his wife, because <laughs> that was like that was out of a different movie. That was a, it was a fun movie, but but that that maybe also had influence on the Sopranos a little bit with the idea of counseling. Um, I I guess I'll go with the scene at the end of the movie where uh basically Pacino confronts him about the picture of the boat, the abscam boat. Um, the only f- well, okay, I'll st- I'll st- stick with that for now because I have another point to make later. But that that's a good scene, and uh, you know, kind of makes the whole thing come full circle. And you know, it's like you can see that uh. Joe or Donnie uh, wants Lefty to get away. That's why he's offering him the boat. That's why he's collected all that money. And it's a little bit, he's become almost as schleppish and as pathetic as uh, as Lefty has, or as sad as Lefty has. So it, it's it's a good moment, um, kind of marred. I, I, I didn't I didn't like the scene after with the FBI busting them up, but that, that scene in the car is a pretty good moment.
0: Well, I'll expand on that. I, I, I wrote down like any scene in any car with Lefty and Donnie. Yeah. Like th- th- yeah those are those cool. are the best scenes you know like <laughs> like did i say it? did i say you had a wire like like no i mean i dropped a screwdriver you know like you dropped a screwdriver in my stereo like come on like i mean like every every time they're in a car like they're having some it's either some test it's some like uh really interesting conversation all of those scenes uh the the first one especially because i mean you could just see the, these two actors just riffing with each other and it, and it's and it's 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 really something else. Which I mean, and I think this is yeah Johnny Depp's finest hour. You're gonna
1: turn around now? No, I mean after the bridge, I'm gonna find a spot <laughs> and
0: turn around. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you're not making any sense. He keeps saying that like,
1: Donnie don't make any sense. I,
0: yeah. I would
1: say my my runner up for for best scene is uh is the final scene when you see Lefty like talking to his wife, and then preparing everything for him to go get hit, knowing that that's what's coming, and then leaving the message for Donnie if Donnie calls, tell him if it was going to be anybody.
0: I'm glad it was him. So um, do you think he did that the first time that he thought he was going to get whacked when he got called for the first time? You think he left all his shit there, and then he just got in a car with Donnie to, to go to his grave, basically? I don't think so. I don't think so.
1: But I think this was so so... uh
0: it was ritualistic, almost. I mean, I yeah. feel like he might have and, done it.
1: He might have. He might have. Did I say I was gonna get whacked? I never said that.
0: Not in so many <laughs> words. Not in <laughs> so <some> many <laughs> words.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, if there was a sequel, do we have an answer for this? I don't have anything
3: for this.
2: I do. Go the sequel. It. The sequel would be uh, a woman tracking down Joe Pistone for the five hundred thousand dollar reward, and that woman would be played by Rinko Kikuchi. She would be <laughs> from Japan, trying to find Joe. Uh, <laughs> so, so the,
0: so the Japanese restaurant owner's like daughter or something. Conspiracy. <laughs> <hack. laughs>
1: That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I
0: like, mean, I, yeah, I think young Lefty, like him, him getting integrated into the mob would be a fascinating thing to watch. But I, I'm sure that we couldn't actually do that accurately. But
1: played by. Christopher Mintz (laughs) Blast. Young Lefty? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I don't know.
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That just popped into my head. It's it's a comedy.
1: I I am McLevin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Sunny Red played by James Franco. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) All right. uh, Flaws, outdated conspiracy theories. Anybody have anything?
2: I thought the move, the music in this movie was terrible. It might be my LVP candidate. It's way over the top, but that's also kind of par for the course with with the '90s. Um, Oscar I, nominated Patrick Doyle. Yeah, and he did. Yeah, he's normally a good composer. Uh, a couple of conspiracy theories here um, or questions. First of all, um, are the gems real? I mean, we never really know. That is a great question. What the and ones that he pulls out of his. No, the Fugazi. Of, of the paper. Yeah, the Fugazi, yeah. And oh wait, oh the, ri- the ring
0: the ring. The ring is the wrong Yeah, I mean the the, the gems that he likes he spills out and that he has in the paper, those have gotta be real, I would think.
2: Well, yeah. we don't we don't know. And I think I think maybe it's a metaphor for the movie, just like we never really know who Joe slash Donnie is or what his loyalties are to. So um the other thing that it made me think of is wasn't it wonderful that uncut gems didn't have any storyline about whether the gems were real or not? Like, you would think that that would have to be in any screenplay about a jeweler, but uh, they didn't have that in the movie. Um, I don't know why they use shotguns to kill um, Sonny Black's group or Sonny Red's group, and then they ultimately kill Nikki. Like, what's with the shotguns? Can we get some automatic, semi-automatic something or, like, something that doesn't take that long? Um, I had some real questions. Can, can a great stick man have a mustache? Uh, and I think back a little bit to uh, Body Heat with William Hurt, who had a mustache and was also a great stick man in that movie. But um, Johnny Depp's uh, mustache in this movie really takes down his stick man um, cr- credibility. And then the last one I had, my, a conspiracy theory, is that the Michael Ma- the, the Michael Madsen in this movie, he's, his name is not actually Sonny Black. It's Sonny Blonde because he's Mr. Blonde. That was for you, nice. Terry. Well, and one thing with the uh, like a uh, th-
0: there's this Tom Selleck movie Mr. Baseball where uh he has a thing where he he absolutely is a stick man, and his his whole thing is mustache rides for the ladies. And so I, I think uh, you can have a mustache and be a stick man.
2: Goose's son is probably a stick man, right? He has a mustache.
1: Absolutely. There there were like memes going out after Top Gun Maverick came out of like. When you grow out your mustache, what you think you look like, and it would show Miles Teller in Top Gun Maverick, and then it was like, what you actually look like, and it would show something hideous.
0: Anthony Edwards. (laughs) 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 Probably. Probably.
1: (laughs) Probably. So really quick. So Patrick Doyle, he's a two-time Oscar nominee, and he was coming off two straight years of being nominated when he did the music for Donnie Brasco, because he was nominated for Sense and Sensibility in 95, and Hamlet in 96, and then he did Donnie Brasco in 97. I didn't think the music was that bad. I kind of liked it. Yeah. Todd, did you have anything?
0: No, I didn't have anything written down for flaws.
1: I I have one. I don't know where else to put it, but I'm going to put it here. I'm going to say it's a conspiracy theory. I think, and I couldn't find this anywhere, but I think near the beginning of the movie, when Sonny Black's crew is, like, getting the, the like, stealing the coats and there's like the racks of coats they're putting on the truck. I think one of the guys on the truck is Robert De Niro. If not, it's gotta be like his stunt double or something because he looks
2: just like De Niro. Maybe it's Paul Rudd doing a uh, Robert De Niro imitation. I had to go back. I had to rewind (laughs) it
1: and look at it two or three times. These These shoes,
3: these
1: These coats, these coats, Mm -hmm. but no, Go back and watch that scene. It looks like De Niro's in the truck. And I, I I tried to find it and like he's gotta be in the cast list uncredited or something. Nope, he's nowhere, but I think De Niro's in the truck.
0: What's it the, did he have a mustache? Because this was the year of Jackie Brown. So uh,
1: oh that's a good point. Yeah, if it was the year he might have been it might have been the guy might have been a little too young to actually be De Niro, but it looks like De Niro. All right. LVP MVP. Then we gotta we gotta wrap this thing up. Uh, I'll go first. My LVP is Richie Gazzo. Obviously, first. he's he's the Fredo. He screws everything <laughs> up. Uh, my MVP is is Lefty. I mean he, I mean he's he's the man. He's awesome. Even though he he's the lovable loser. So yes, you gotta go with Lefty. All right, Zach.
2: Yeah, in a similar vein, my MVP is Lefty, but more specifically Lefty's wardrobe, because he's the only one who doesn't wear Florida attire, Um, and I love that he's just wearing the exact same old man clothes uh, in New York as he does in Florida. Dress like I dress. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But he is the
1: one that wants the club the most.
2: That's true. It's kind of like the advice that Hesh gives Tony Soprano in season one when he says mob bosses don't wear shorts. Um, just like there haven't been <laughs> there hasn't been a hand job in cargo shorts since NAM. Uh my LVP for this movie is uh Paul Giamatti Miles because um he's the one that suggested the abscam boat. He's the one that said, oh. Hey, we have a boat, the FBI has a boat, and that leads to well, I don't know if it really leads to their downfall, but it certainly leads to Lefty figuring things out, or maybe maybe Newsweek magazine for publishing that picture. Maybe that's the real. Wasn't episode. it Tim Blake Nelson that suggested it? Well, okay, well maybe both. They come of up that. with it together, but yeah, Tim Blake I mean, Nelson the first they're, one. They're one it.
1: character. They're they're yeah. two people playing yeah. one character, really. So
2: the real the real regret is that there no there's been no movie with Tim Blake Nelson and Paul Giamatti together. Now how how can we make that a reality? Could we Kickstarter that shit? It the library. weird question
0: is why Paul Giamatti hasn't
2: been in a Cohen Brothers movie. Yeah. Oh, well, wow. Else yeah. In an Alexander Payne movie. <laughs> um,
0: true.
1: Both are are equally equally impressive. All right, Todd, LVP MVP.
2: Uh
0: My LVP, I had um, Richie and uh, the U.S. Attorney. Who? Mm. I mean, yeah, he's gonna screw everything up. You know, The Stone, Joe. Yeah, Joe, I mean, you can't get the the point, like, you're standing right behind him yelling at him, and he's not going to turn around. Uh, my MVP, I mean, there's a lot. The one thing I want to say, I mean, I Zach kind of said it, well, like, uh, the costumes, like, I love the tan suits. Like, I mean, uh, like, there's some awesome suits in this movie, but like, I love the sound editors in this movie because the one thing that's always stuck with me is the sound of... Donnie sawing through a guy's leg, but also through their boot at the same time, and that sound has never left my mind since the first time I watched this movie, and that is because of great sound editing.
2: Yeah, that scene with the FBI, see, I would have liked that scene had I not seen Ocean's Eleven. When there was the exact same scene in that movie, when it's like, yo, Saul, Saul Bloom, it's me, Bucky Buchanan from Saratoga. Which was made
1: four years after this. I
2: know, I know it was. (laughs) I'm saying I saw this movie after that. So it, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Uh, All right, the
0: filmmakers.
1: (laughs) Let's wrap this up. Quote of the daytime, and we're starting with Zach.
2: My quote of the day comes from the Up series, and uh, it's actually the first Up movie. And it's when Michael to asks Andrew what, what he thinks of girls. And he says, I have a girlfriend, but I don't think much of her. <laughs> <laughs> Great line.
1: Who is, who's the one that says, I, I don't answer questions like that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that was your guy right that was uh um, yeah, oh that nick, was nicholas yeah. yeah
1: yeah i don't answer questions yeah, they, like the
0: that. correct answer would be i don't answer questions like that yeah yeah you know? and then he
1: keeps on bringing it up every year it's like well i mean uh, that yeah the correct answer would be i don't answer questions like that
0: yeah well the, the second time he says that he's like he looks like Stephen hawking or something like, or like eddie redmond playing Stephen hawking where he's all <laughs> yes. like hunched over yes,
2: yes. <laughs> the recasting for the Up series would be eddie redmond as 14 year old nick <laughs> yeah, there it is yeah. beautiful Eddie Redmayne playing Stephen Hawking, playing Nicholas. Yeah. Uh,
1: all right, Todd, quote of the day.
0: Uh, well, I have two written down. Uh, one is uh w- one that I've always thought about when I think of this movie is like, uh, he's like, you know, he's like, hey, I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die over here with that draft. And, and then he says, I'm getting f- cancer over here. I mean, I always think that whenever someone's smoking around me, it's, I just feel like I'm getting f- cancer over here. But the other one I want to say is a wise guy's always right, even when he's wrong, he's right, and I, I feel like you could say that about women. <laughs> very
1: nice, very nice. All right, so so my quote is from a song that is uh, celebrating its uh, two-year anniversary today, uh, and the 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 first verse of the song goes: I used to ride my, I used to run for miles, I used to ride my bike, I used to wake up with a smile. And go to bed at night with a dream, but now I'm turning 30. Happy 32nd birthday to Bo Burnham. Wow. Beautiful. That's that's my that's my <laughs> quote. <It's>
2: a, speechless. <laughs> a Bo Burnham, lefty, and a seven-year-old. <laughs> real stickman on this podcast.
1: Uh, nothing more <laughs> almost sideways than that. All right. With that, we're gonna draw this podcast to a close. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies,
0: and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.